Cinnamon, where you gonna run to? Cinnamon, where you gonna run to? Where you gonna run to? All on that day, will I run to the rock? Please hide me and run to the rock. Please hide me and run to We're the live. rock. Welcome to another episode of Pod Like a Hole presents a space podity, a deep dive in David Bowie's discography with three guys in their late thirties. We're nobodies. We're not comedians. We don't have uh, Patreon. Well, we do actually have a Patreon account, but we're not from UCB or anything like that. We're just three friends that got together and made a podcast. It's it's unheard of. Three white guys in their thirties making a podcast in this day and age. It's unbelievable. But it's true, folks. So what we do here for season one, we talked all the things of Nine Inch Nails and Trent Reznor. Uh, but this season, we disgu- decided to go deep into Bowie. And we roll our intrepid diamond dice. It tells us what album we're going to hit. And we talk about it. As we wind down the season, um, we are coming to the end. And what better to hit upon David Bowie's ninth studio album released in 1975, Young Americans. Uh, this is your host, Mark. I'm always joined with uh, Eric and Steve. Let's hear from them. Hey, Mark. Thanks. And, and you know, it's true we're not from UCB. Um, does it count if uh, my application got denied um, for their comedy school? I mean, uh, I'm not surprised, A, that you were denied. I mean, we're, we're a rough group that really doesn't really thrive on improv. Um, and B... Uh, we'll get him next time, Eric. There's always That's Second right. City. That's right. <laughs> Hi, Steve. Hey there. I, sorry, I was just reading that uh, amongst today's events, the uh, the Daughters of the Confederacy building is burning down. Oh. Good for that. Uh, I'm glad to hear Fantastic. That. That's there's, good. A, there's a silver lining to all the chaos. <sighs> that yeah, is... I got the world, there's, there's crazy stuff happening in the world today, and... Uh, you know, luckily we, we, we love a little escapism with this, but it is gonna, you know, it is, it is, it is on our minds. Um, you know, uh, and, um, it's a crazy time and, uh, an important time. I checked my weather app, uh, and all it said for next week was the forecast was for locusts. So things are looking <laughs> <Yeah>. up. <laughs> <laughs> oh god that was better the second time mark it was great <laughs> i was workshopping that one yeah we yeah yeah i appreciate that <laughs> yes but uh um at the risk of getting political and actually i don't care about being political i will say that uh, we at pod like a whole uh, wish there was justice for george floyd so there you go that's right i'll leave it at that's that right. I mean, I would uh, even take it one step further, not just for George Floyd, but the future George Floyds out there. Um, I, I want this madness to stop. Um, I, I truly do. And my heart bleeds for uh, just injustice throughout the world. And I just wish that we could all be humans. Um, but it's hard. It's hard out there. The frustration, I understand. We stand with you. Yep. Uh well, before I make my uh, Aerosmith living on the edge joke again, I guess I just did. Let's go back to 1975, Eric. We're going to talk about Young Americans. That's right. 1975. So, well, uh, world's in a, 
a little bit of a transition period. Um, things are calming down in America. Um, uh, Vietnam War is ending. Uh, believe it or not, New York City almost went bankrupt. But our, our president, Gerald Ford, uh, gave him a loan. And it, I always like uh, movies that take place in New York from this era because it's just a different world than what you see, you know, what you see it looks like now. I mean, it's gritty. Um, it's not, I mean, I'm sure there was in, you know, certain parts like Manhattan, there, there definitely was fancy parts of New York, but it was just, it's just a, it, it's a cool little photograph of a time that may never happen again. Uh, just a, uh, basically I'm saying I like that uh, New York was really sleazy for a while. I'm good with that. Speaking of uh, good movies from the bygone era, I learned a, an interesting tidbit today. Did you guys, the the gentleman who wrote Chinatown, I cannot remember his name, but do you know what else he wrote besides Chinatown? The Two Jakes? <laughs> better. A better sequel. Mission Impossible 2. <laughs> wow. Oh, wow. Really? <laughs> yes. And did, do you think he wrote that the doves fly in slow motion and then that's why John Wu got attached no, to it? Or was that, yeah, no. did they do that in post? I'm fairly certain that Wu had that in his contract. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he worked on that movie, and so did uh, Ron Gilbert from Star Trek and uh, BSG. So, there you go. Ron, not Ron Gilbert. Ron Gilbert made the Monkey Island games. Uh, Ron Moore. But uh, anyhow, moving right along, that, that made me yeah. laugh, because you can't get much yeah. more different than Chinatown and Mission Impossible 2. Well, in that theme, this is the year, as, as uh, expertly captured in the film The Irishman, uh, this is the year that Jimmy Hoffa disappeared, never to be seen again. Um, and uh, I think we gave that that movie enough airtime when it when we all watched it, but uh, that was fun. Um, the uh, in beginning a conversation that's still going on to this day. This was the year that the United Kingdom votes yes to join the European Union. But let's get to the fun stuff. Pop culture. Brexit. Pop culture. So music, Stephen. Get stand. Stand at attention. Bruce Springsteen releases Born to Run. Ah, Born to Run. That's a classic. We've all heard it. And it won't be the first, it won't be the last time that we talk about Springsteen tonight. Real fast, Steve. I won't go off track, but just from your gut, number one Springsteen album for you. Darkness on the Edge of Town. That's a good answer. That's a good answer. No debate. Well, I'll ask you, you know, as a, uh, as not a super fan, but just a, a sane, normal fan, what do you think yours is? I bet it's Nebraska. Born to Run. Born to Run is uh, an achievement all the way from start to finish. Um, but Darkness on the Edge of Town is solid gold, too. That one is good. Um, yeah. I said Nebraska because I thought we already had this conversation. So We did. I think and I'm, I'm, a, I'm, the, I'm the Nebraska boy. There yeah. you go. All right. Erica is more the singer-songwriter. I like my layers, man. I like, you know, yep. just pile Talk, them that doesn't instruments make, that on. Doesn't, that, that generalization makes no sense. I just, but I do like sad bastard shit, and that's that's probably why uh, I like yeah, it. Yeah, no, Eric, you're the one, out of the three of us, you're the one, you're the one that wore the uh, the knit hacky sack hat and played oh my, folk punk dark, at the coffee shop. 
that is a dark time in my past and I would not judge uh, any of your, if you were made a decision in a similar state of mind I was in during that time, I would not judge you now for it. And uh, Hey, if you, if you want to talk about our favorite uh, ICP albums, we can do that too. I'll, 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 <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll wear my past sins. I always thought of Eric as the six string samurai, uh, you know, with the acoustic guitar slung on his back. Like if it was a katana sword. That's that's Eric in my mind. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I don't even want to talk about this anymore. All right. So uh, other musicians. Uh, Aerosmith had a, quite a year this year, I assume. Uh, Steve already made the, the living on the edge joke. Um, and I believe this is the album they released called Scarf Scarfs and More Scarfs. Um, <laughs> uh, with, that, with their big hit Scarf On. Uh, anyways, Aerosmith, not a fan, and, and, but and Living on, on, Dream on was okay. But Living on the Edge is actually a good song. I'm sorry, I decided that this week it's a good song. Do in you like my it mind, when the bass drum just goes do do do. Living on the edge. That part's that great. That's awesome. That's right up there. I actually prefer that, Weird Al version. Yeah, uh, living in the living fridge. in the fridge. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that that early '90s sonic sound. I mean, that's the same reason that I'm a huge. Huge fan of Van Hagar's right now. I love that early 90s, uh, just ridiculous rock production. So, yes. Oh, man. Pop-up <laughs> video on that video was something else. It was great. <laughs> uh, all right. So, Black Sabbath had a big year. Eagles, best of my love. Um, listen, Bob Marley and the Whalers were starting to get big. Queen uh, was still riding strong during this time. The Who made the film version of their their uh, rock opera Tommy. I I have vivid memories as a child of Tommy. I think my parents played it all the time. Um, and uh, it's kind of a fucked up story, but I don't know. Do you guys you guys fans of Tommy? You know, I've never seen the movie, and I've never actually listened to the album all the way through. Um, I mean, I I've I I have shared my feelings on the Who on this very show. Um, and I do feel that because of their status, I should give them a day in court. I just haven't, I don't know why. Well, Tommy is the album about a, a deaf, dumb and blind boy who, uh, was plays a mean pinball, plays a mean pinball. He's, I think he is, uh, maybe even also molested by his uncle who uh, is played by Elton John in the in the film version, the stage version, um, and uh, yeah, and, and yeah, you play. It's basically the the movie The Wizard, but um, but with pinball. So it's actually, with the exception of the molestation, it's exactly The Wizard, but with pinball. So back back to things that matter. Uh, the Black Sabbath album that year was Sabotage, which is a upper tier record it's got such songs as hole in the sky symptom of the universe and am i going insane you might know those ones good album came after sabbath bloody sabbath which is the best of the aussie albums if you ask me and it was before technical ecstasy which i think is a very underrated album there you go so uh kiss released kiss alive this year which was a huge success for a live album it's a good live album um, 
And I know one of you is going to get this without me having to look it up right now, but Pink Floyd, 1975. Must have been. Um, metal? Uh, no, that was. Uh, no. So we're talking. That's got to be Wish You Were Here. You, you're right. Yeah. You're right. And this was the year they did the tour, the tour for it, which was a big, a big success. Yeah. So that, that's music. Uh, TV programs. Kojak. The Six Million Dollar Man, um, shows we've talked about a lot before, but um, uh, Saturday Night Live debuted this year on NBC, and um, not ready for prime time players. the The original ones that uh, that Jane Curtin, Bill Murray, Dana. Hey, okay, well, so movies we can talk about. Um, you know, you had you had a few things here and there that flew under the radar. You had, you know. Uh, Return of Pink Panther and the Albert Finney uh, Murder on the Orient Express, which is a fun, it's actually a pretty fun movie. Um, but big films. You got The Godfather Part 2. Yeah, Young Frankenstein. You got Jaws. Oh man, it's been so hot lately. It's good, it's good Jaws weather. It's getting there. We're, we're, a month, we're a month and change away from the National Jaws Day though, so yeah, I can just wait. Alrighty, so uh, that's 1975 for you. Setting, I mean, you know, uh, Nixon was just out of the White House. Uh, America kind of went through some shit when that happened, and um, it was at this kind of this kind of lull period. What the um, at least uh, on surface level, uh, things were calming down a little bit, and uh, that brings us to whatever Mr. Bowie was doing. In 1975, he was probably watching sports. Sports. Yes, sports in 1975. What? What could have been going on? In 1975, in the sports world, which is a, you know, we usually only take about, oh, I don't know, a minute to talk about sports, but someone made a joke on the internet this week, so I'm going to drag this out. Let's see. American football. Ah, yes. Super Bowl nine. The Steelers beat the Minnesota Vikings. Ah, the Pittsburgh Steelers. I do enjoy their color scheme. And I actually would like to visit the city of Pittsburgh one day. Mark, have you been to Pittsburgh? I haven't, but the uh, uh, the Gotham Knights, I think, that was in Dark Knight Rises, um, that was filmed with the Steelers in Pittsburgh. So you are correct. They also have the same colors. But yeah, the city of yes, Pittsburgh, I'm- not in Pennsylvania, but I have in California. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, Family ties and uh, other ties to Batman movies as I watch Batman Begins today. That's a good one. You know, the plan was to watch the entire Nolan trilogy this weekend. And goddamn, uh, four year olds. I don't know if you guys have ever had one before. I think you both have. Um, Can't get anything done. Can't get jack shit done. Child is a tyrant. (laughs) True. (laughs) But uh, speaking of tyrants. 
over in baseball, the big red machine, the Cincinnati Reds, they beat the Boston Red Sox four to three. And I'm always happy. That's four to three games in the World Series, by the way. There had to have been a fun red. uh, Was there like a cool, like, you know, the, 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 the battle for the reddest or something? Was there a cool, like, red pun in that, in that series? I'm, uh, trying to test the mute button right now. Um, (laughs) oh, come on. Sports is that stupid shit all the time. Come on. It was two red teams against each other. All right. Well, whatever. Better red than dead. Yeah. That's what they said. But uh, anyhow, no, the, the Boston Red Sox, anytime they can lose, it's fun. Although, you know, uh, old Pete Rose, mixed feelings. Uh, the, I don't know if he should be banned for life, but he damn near killed Ray Fossey that decade. And I'll always hold that against him. In the middle of the All-Star game. Oh, but you know, what other sports are there? Oh, yes, there's basketball. And uh, we're going to, how long have I been going? Oh, keep it going. Let's see, basketball, the NBA Finals. Oh, the Golden State Warriors. Those bastards. That was back when they were in San Francisco, before they were back in San Francisco. They beat the Washington Bullets, who don't exist anymore. Didn't they change Four their game? straight. Just the Wizards? Yes, the, the Wizards. That's right. Speaking of and, the uh, uh, Golden State Warriors, as someone who's getting late into the whole basketball uh, thing... I thought the Warriors are like a dynasty team. And then I looked at their record this year. What the hell happened? <laughs> no, that's, it's a, uh, no, they, that's a, uh, yes. The Warriors, uh, for someone that's getting into basketball this decade, you'd be like, my God, I thought they were the, uh, the fucking Yankees. No, they were, they were terrible for decades. It's awful. As bad as the Kings. And, uh, then they, 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 they turned it all around. This t- good drafting, good coaching. And, uh, they just been kicking ass the majority of this decade. And then they got just riddled with injuries this last season. And so, yeah, they were, they were really, uh, they kind of, they kind of became like worse than the giants after their world series wins, if you will. Yeah. So might be a Bay area thing. (laughs) Seriously. You might be onto something. They'll be able, they'll be able to turn it around really quick though. When like just two of those guys get healthy. So I know uh, uh, who you, uh, who you, who you favoring for this year. If, if the NBA actually does restart. I don't even, I can't even wrap my head around it. Yeah. I think I was on, I was on team LeBron with his Lakers, but, uh, you know, I'm not even sure. I really would like a, a Lakers Clippers, uh, Western conference finals. Oh, that wow. would have been fun. Yeah, sure. Uh, the, both those teams are stacked, but we'll see. I, I would like for sports to come back, but I can't even, it's like at the bottom of, of many piles of things I'm thinking about right now. So, yeah, you know. In the meantime, pay your minor league players, Oakland A's. Oh, boy. I know. Not a good look. You hear me, Mr. Fisher? Mr. Fisher, I know you're a David Bowie fan. Um, all right, Eric. That's what you get when you mock how often we talk about sports in this podcast. I, I tripled oh, so- it tonight. I'm sorry. I was folding laundry. Are we back? <laughs> all right. <laughs> that explains a lot. I've seen I've seen the way you dress. <laughs> yeah, yes, I'm wearing bas- I'm wearing basketball shorts right now. Nineteen seventy 
25. Bowie's in kind of a weird phase, right? He uh, He's killed Ziggy Stardust. He tried this new persona, Halloween Jack, Diamond Dogs. Um, but it was like a half-baked theme album. He didn't really... You could tell he didn't even want to commit to anything really in there. Um, except for Dystopia. That he got down, for the most part. Uh, and then he kind of turns tail. And he wants to uh, kind of not mess with glam rock anymore and and really pay tribute to soul and r&b music um to the uh the black music that he lo- that he loves so well and in interviews you know and and i think what will come up a few times and you know is 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 there some cultural appropriation going on is there some co-opting going on i think that's a fair argument i mean he was pretty um, upfront about that um, in interviews, as like as he was making the rounds, just, you know, trying to uh, the PR rounds, he was saying, you know, the squashed remains of ethnic music as it survives in the age of Muzak rock, written and sung by a white limey. Um, so he knew what he was doing. It's why he called it plastic soul. Um, but you know, I th- as we'll talk about uh, in each song to varying degrees, there is a certain amount of earnestness, you know, to it. That, uh, yeah, that's but the, the thing is, it's like this isn't like Blues Hammer. He went and he got some of the best of the best that he could find. Guys that you know, uh, this is how he just he hooked up with Carlos Alomar, who played with James Brown for God's sakes, you know. And right. uh, this wasn't just, and, and we've mentioned before that in at the height of the Bowie band's powers, it was a multi-ethnic group, and that kind of started here um, and continued for years. And so, there. Yeah, appropriation. I don't know if that's the word I would use. I uh, word has interesting connotations to it. When it comes to what he was trying to do, I think he got about as authentic as one could be, without actually being able to come from where he needed to come from to be authentic about it. If that makes sense. Yeah, that's a good point because but, he brought in uh, Luther Vandross to be basically the singing coach. Um, and he brought in, you know, black musicians, black singers. Um, and, but he didn't, I mean, he changed the singing style a little bit, but it's still Bowie. He wasn't. It's just, just a touch. I actually, I, in my notes, you, you start to hear this style on diamond dogs on a like candidate sweet thing, Mm -hmm. uh, that really low register he starts using. Uh, I think he started going in that direction on diamond dogs to an extent. Diamond Dogs is such a weird album. Diamond Dogs is a transitional album to a transitional album. It's the, the Diamond Dogs is the first step of the transition. Young Americans, the next one. Then Station to Station, which is also kind of a transition to the low period, is still a complete piece that picks up pieces a lot from this, I think. But right. uh, yeah, I think that was the direction he was heading in uh, vocally already. Um. So before we get to the players involved, Mark, did you have any opinion on uh, this direction? Yeah, I was going to say that uh, I'm right there with Steve's analogy of how everything seems to be a transition and a bridge to the next thing. Um, if if I look at back at Station to Station, I think this is in my overall notes when we go into our track by track. But I absolutely see that Station to Station is kind of an amalgamation of what he was uh, uh, achieving on Diamond Dogs and on this record. And then um, obviously goes into kind of a more of a minimalist direction with Low and um, 
uh, subsequent albums until he kind of gets out of the quote unquote Berlin phase. Um, but going back to, I don't think the appropriation, I am right there with Steven. I don't feel that Bowie ever tries to appropriate a different culture. I think that he is such a big fan of music as a genre that he gets so passionate about wanting to put his own spin on it. And um, that's the thing that coming out of this album, if you're looking at it from kind of a almost a satirical record to what soul music sounds like, I really think that you're being too cynical. This album is straight up Bowie appreciating soul and R&B and just really wanting to experiment in that realm without having it have any sort of racial divide. Um, so yeah. I don't think there was any co-opting or appropriating going on here. Yeah, and, I, and, I, and I'm not saying that either. I'm just saying, you know, based on the concept of this album, it's a fair question to pose. Sure. But I, I, I you know, but I, but I'm with you guys on that. And that's some, you know, I, I did kind of ask myself before I started listening, listening to it. And then I think I definitely came to a solid answer at, at the end. I, I didn't feel that was the case. And, oh, yeah, and we're based, not... based on the people that he, that he had involved in it, it was, uh, you know, it, it's a love letter to black soul music. And, you know, it is, and in a way, especially if you listen to the music, you listen to the backing singers, it is a it is it is a an item to be submitted in 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 the history of black music in its own kind of way. So. But yeah, he got, you know, it was uh, they had a break in the Diamond Dogs tour and I, I don't they just happened to be in the Philadelphia area, which is where a lot of the uh, I, I am. This is in my music history. The. No, my bona fides. This is not my uh, my realm where I know a lot of details, but I know you know Soul and Philadelphia kind of go hand in hand, and so they went to that that Sigma Studio, which, if I understand correctly, was where like a lot of the the classics were recorded, and they 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 just kind of they burned this thing off and in a six day a six week period in between uh like the 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 two halves of their tour, and um. I think that lends some authenticity to it. Um, you know, this wasn't recorded in uh, London, England with a bunch of random players. Right. Um, yeah. And I, I, this was actually done in, in a few different um, segments. Uh, when it, And I actually, it's, it's funny. I, I read something in, in the research that I was reminded. Remember that when we talked was it Station to Station, which is the one where we watched that that weird BBC documentary of Bowie, the Cracked Actor documentary? Do you remember that? Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, I think, yeah, that, I think it was. Uh, yeah, it was, I think it was, it was around. Like, yeah. It was It was when we talked about Station to Station, I think, and also around when we watched the Man Who Fell to Earth. I think it were near each other. So, right. Yeah. Yeah, and um, so that one, at some, po at some point in that, you see – Bowie, Luther Vandross, and a and a collection of the singers practicing um, a song that actually ends up being on this album, and um, the album probably hadn't been released at least when that was filmed yet. So, um, just kind of cool to see that in its in its early inceptions. Um, so the the when they first started recording it, they created a little a little album that was eventually scrapped, although pieces were used and songs were absolutely used called the Gouster, which we'll talk about it more later. Um, 
But uh, it was, you know, Tony Visconti was involved as the producer. Luther, Luther Vandross was already on board. Um, and they just wanted to get some rough cuts of these songs. Uh, but they did end up using, like, Young Americans is the exact same Gouster version that, that shows up in the album. That was just, obviously, just uh, milk in a bottle when they, uh, when they, lightning in the bottle? Milk in the, whatever. <laughs> when they recorded it. Um, uh, but that whole album in itself, if you listen to it, it's available on the Who Am I Now box set. And um, it does have a looser feel to it. The songs, some of the songs go on a little bit longer. Some aren't as dynamic, but they get to like do little funk jams a little bit, a little bit more. Visconti called it a 40 minutes of glorious funk. Um, but it definitely was the inception of what young Americans would be. They decided they needed to, to give it, edit it a bit more. And that's, and that's why they re-recorded a lot of it. But, um, that's the Gouster and, uh, definitely, I don't know. Did you guys think it was worth a listen? Mark, go ahead. Yeah, I did actually. I mean, it was interesting to kind of see uh, the, I guess, evolution of some of these songs that ended up. Uh, there are some versions I actually did appreciate a little bit more in terms of the arrangement. Um, uh, from what I can tell, the uh, what uh, or who can I be now box set, because the Gouster only has about maybe seven tracks. Yeah. Um, and it's sandwiched right between uh, uh, Diamond Dogs and um, Young Americans on that box set. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's some th songs on that mix uh, that didn't appear on the final product. And we can kind of talk about those at the very end in the supplemental phase of our conversation. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, one thing that I, I want to make sure that we don't gloss over at this point, Luther Vandross was not who we remember him to be this day. He wasn't an R&B stalwart at this point in his career. He was just an in-demand backup singer. Um, so uh, even though he came on to have a really uh, lucrative career at this point, he was just someone who had bounced around to a lot of different artists. And someone else who also appears in this record um, is David Sanborn, um, also just a studio musician during this part of his career. But he came on to be, you know, Kind of a uh, smooth jazz. I when I was well. in, I was I played in jazz band in high school, in middle school. I played the stand up bass, and all of the saxophone nerds love some David Sanborn. They were always passing around David Sanborn <laughs> CDs. I'm like, all right, uh, all right, okay. I mean, at least. I mean, there's some good sax on this record, I'll tell you. Yeah, I mean, yeah. David Sanborn's fine, but you're right. It's very smooth jazz. The, uh, you know, the saxophone, sure. I mean, the trumpet players would at least pass around like Miles Davis or, you know, your, uh, your, uh, your uh, Marsalis, your White and Marsalis, you know. But uh, yeah, Sanborn is a, is a great sax player. But yeah, his solo stuff is um, it's a little, it's a little soft. It's a little soft. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's uh, we should note here that in the way that Vandross got involved was the Carlos Alomar connection. Uh, David Bowie met Carlos Alomar uh, a few months before or some such. And Carlos mentioned to David Bowie that he like he played the Apollo before. And David Bowie was just blown away that he met somebody that played the Apollo, because I guess that was something that uh, David had an aspiration to do. And that's how he met Luther Vandross, 
<clears throat> and uh, they, you know, they, they got in the band together. And also, as uh, Carlos uh, was the one that suggested that they replace Tony Newman and Herbie Flowers for what they were trying to do. And uh, they got a, a, a member from the main ingredient, the drummer Andy Newmark, formerly of Sly and the Family Stone, and a legendary black bassist, Willie Weeks, a veteran of the Isley Brothers. And uh, I guess that blew Tony Visconti's mind. And so, as I was saying earlier, this was not just trying to replicate a sound. They got people that actually yeah. came up with these sounds. For yeah, it's album. not just like I was saying. It's I not just it's a tribute. Awesome. It is an original piece of this world that, you know, definitely. No, I mean, you know, only a guy at this time like David Bowie could do this. You know, if it was some rando off the street, yeah, they wouldn't be able to right. pull all these people together. Um, so the Gouster was just, uh, it was a very loose loose uh they just wanted to start feeling the band out um the singing uh a big thing that bowie worked on with luther vandros was you know how to how to work the backing vocals around what he was doing um and uh, they were kind of feeling that out and the songs are a little bit longer than they appear on the album and we'll we'll, we'll talk about them and, and maybe do a little comparison for some of them as we discuss the whole album um but uh you know, it definitely is kind of cool to hear some of the more extended funk, funky stuff going on on the Gouster. But eventually they regrouped um, to do it for real. They did keep, like I said, they kept Young Americans as is. Um, and then they they retooled, they, they, they snipped and cut some of the other tracks. They made some brand new ones that weren't on the Gouster and they and they made their album. Yeah, and they, you know they would they still recorded the majority of it live. Um, about about eighty five percent of Young Americans yeah. was recorded live, which I think is pretty awesome. And you can kind of hear that. I think that's why some of it sounds so groovy, and people are really locked in. You can kind of hear that uh, that live presence there. Um, it, it 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 took them about actually two weeks to record the album proper. And did you guys did you guys read about the uh, the Sigma I Kids? Did. No, tell me more. Yeah, that that's well, just something I just wanted to mention is that uh, apparently uh, David Bowie fans learned they were recording the album in Philadelphia, and they would hang out outside. And as the, as the band members go in, they would like talk to them and you know did, just have a good time. And for uh, a recording of uh, uh, on, the, on the last day of the recording. Uh, David Bowie invited him in for a, a listening party, basically. Uh, we have David Bowie on vocals, on, on vocals, guitar, and keyboards. Carlos Alomar on guitars. Uh, friend of the show, Mike Garson on piano. Doing the most subdued piano, I think, in the whole uh, Bowie catalog, if you ask me. Uh, there's not many cats on the, uh, the keyboard in this one. David Sanborn, who we just mentioned on saxophone. Willie Weeks on bass guitar. And Newmark on drums. And Earl Slick is here on guitar additional musicians of which there are a few 
Larry Washington on the conga. Pablo Rosario does percussion on Across the Universe and Fame. Ava Cherry doing backup vocals, and uh, she did. Uh, she's the I Am the Laser artist, isn't she? Yes, yeah, and and she and and you know Bowie was romantically involved with her during this time. Um, he, uh, she, they did song like she did some songs that Bowie would later re- remake. Like she, he would write songs for her for her album, then he would later make that put them on his album. Yeah, they they were very much uh, crisscrossing during this time. Ah, Robin Clark, who I think is Cal- Carlos Alomar's wife, on backing vocals. Luther Vandross on backing vocals. Uh, someone named John Lennon. Uh, John Lennon on vocals, guitar, and backing vocals. Emir Kassan on bass guitar. Dennis Davies, his first appearance on the uh, David Bowie discography. The drums on Across the Universe and Fame. And then Ralph McDonald, uh, percussion on Across the Universe and Fame. And Gene Feinberg and Gene Millington. Backing vocals on Across the Universe and Fame. There you go. Quite a quite a wide variety of folks in this one. That's right. Critically, when it came out, right, well, uh, I don't know if we need to touch on that before we get into the whole nitty gritty of it. Um, it I think we do. Uh, it was met with um, really mostly positive reviews. Um, so one thing in particular, uh, you know, I always see this gentleman's name up, uh, famous music critic, Robert uh, Criscow. I think that's how you pronounce it, from the Village Voice. Um, he obviously um, has been around in the music criticism game for a while. I've never actually looked up the man's history, but I always seem to disagree with his reviews. Um, but he described this record as an absolute total failure and said, although the amalgam of rock and Philly soul is so thin, it's interesting. It overwhelms David's voice, which is even thinner. Um, but Rolling Stone, John Lando, uh, who also was another famous music critic, he praised the title track, Young Americans, and thought the album works best when Bowie combines his renewed interest in soul with his knowledge of English pop. Um, and Rolling Stone, four out of five. Uh, the Village Voice. I don't have that in front of me, but I'm sure he late rated it as a bomb. Um, and then later went on to change the record guide later down to a B minus. So God knows, pick a lane, my friend. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, that's I, it. I think I think his 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 review in particular feels kind of reactionary to me, and. If David Bowie's name wasn't on the record, he wouldn't have had that same opinion, I think. Yeah, I know. I mean, that's kind of the danger of being an artist willing to experiment because you're essentially always playing with people's expectations. Um, And if you just can't wrap yourself around that concept, you're not going to be, uh, I guess, meeting it with as much enthusiasm as the artist. Uh, but that's kind of why I, I appreciate Bowie. But it would be interesting to discover Bowie in real time. Um, it's hard for us to say as we have a essentially all of his entire catalog at our disposal. But being in there in the moment and just seeing the directions he was going, I'm sure it was kind of jarring at first. But 
the signs were already there that he was heavily interested in soul and he was just going to go for it. So, yeah, I did. Um, I did pull a lot of my notes actually. Uh, rarely do I get this lucky. I linked you guys to after Dave Bowie died, Pitchfork did a bunch of uh, retroactive reviews and uh, they gave this an 8.7 and did a little, a, a really good synopsis of uh, the, the lead up to the recording of this record. So retroactively the, uh, the old Pitchfork monster digs it. Yeah. I mean, I would say that if you're looking at Bowie's whole career from a casual uh, fan perspective, this one is going to catch you a little off guard um, but I think um, it's still highly regarded in in many circles as a, I mean, this is the only kind of really going for soul sound in his career. And then everything else kind of goes back to um, just straight rock and roll. Um, but this one, yeah, it likes to kind of play with your expectations a little bit. Yeah. And then actually, and that makes me like it more because I try it when I, when I listen to this one, if I'm focusing on it, out of all his albums, it's the one I like to think of the most. Like if I was a Bowie fan when this came out, what would I have made of this record? You know, I just uh, I, 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 I'm trying to think of comparisons of artists that we liked that put out just total curveballs on us uh, growing up. And. Uh, shit, like close. I think it was like maybe Marilyn Manson going straight glam for mechanical animals, but it was still a rock. Sure. Album, you know, uh, you know, I just like, this is, uh, this is, just, it would, it would have been wild to, to after diamond dogs, which had touches of this with maybe 1984 and candidate, you know, I, I don't know how you, how, what you would think when the, when you put this record on, if you weren't expecting, uh, you know, if you didn't get a, a, a press release beforehand telling you what you were in. Yeah. For very interesting yeah and i think that's at the same time it might have been like if your parents thought david bowie was too out there for them this might have been the one where they're like hey what is that you know it would uh, that's right a a, a a bridge record for the family yeah i mean he definitely likes to kind of play within kind of pop sensibilities um but at the same time kind of pushing the envelope of what a typical rock and roll artist is really defined at. He never, I mean, I think this is the first indication in his career that he's not just going to be, you know, Ziggy Stardust. Um, I mean, you saw the signs on diamond yeah. dogs, but now this was like, I'm capable of doing other shit. You guys. Did, uh, did you guys read about the album cover? A little bit, but tell me all about it. Uh, mainly I just wanted to point out that, uh, they tried to get Norman Rockwell to do the album cover. And I believe he wanted like six months in like $600,000 or or some shit. Uh, I exaggerate, but too expensive, too long. So they ended up going with a, a photographer whose name I do not have in front of me that they ended up using many times over in the future. So it worked out well for both of them, but I found that, uh, I found that Norman Rockwell anecdote to be funny. I, I suppose that might have been after they settled on the on the name Young Americans. They thought it would be a, uh, you know, kind of ironic to have Norman Rockwell Americana personified doing the album artwork. Yeah, I, that makes a lot of sense. I could see why they initially had that concept, um, but instead we get, uh, you know, 
the smoking Bowie uh, looking like he's ready to hit Studio 54, um, which he probably was at the time, but you know. <laughs> yeah. Still communicates. What so do you guys, about. do you guys have a, do you have any, any kind of history with soul music at all in your, I mean, I can tell you mine was a, a not really growing up. My parents weren't really into it. Um, when I worked at the record store, I started buying stuff used that I kind of like the check marks I was told to buy. Uh, Marvin Gaye, Curtis Mayfield, uh, James Brown became a big James Brown guy. Uh, that's that's pretty much was my gateway to it was just UCDs at the uh, the record store. soul from this era goes i um you know when i when i was a teenager uh late teenager you know i got really into rap music and i you know heard enough references to some old soul guys in that um that i wanted to do a little digging myself and i you know picked up some records i picked up some marvin gay and um some uh, nina simone I think those are the two that I really like latched onto and listened to a lot. And, um, obviously, you know, James Brown is a, is a, is a blast and a good time. Um, but, uh, and then, uh, uh you know, just being it, the be it being the late nineties, there was some like, uh, new soul acts like your Erica Badu's, um, stuff like that, that I, that I, that I enjoyed quite a bit. Um, but anyways, yeah, it's, you know, it's just a fun, it's a fun genre because, you know, growing up in the eighties and nineties, soul became R and B, but that was kind of different. It was more like vocal exercises and, you know, a lot more like synthesis, like synthesized music, um, while soul had, was much more organic and, um, and still like had elements of rock and, and live instrumentation in it, um, which was a lot of fun. So. I, yeah, yeah, I, I'd say Eric, I agree with you. Soul is probably some of the most organic music when you listen to it. Um, like even on this album, so much of it when it's live, done right like that, it's a uh, pretty thrilling at times when it all comes together. And uh, it, yeah, mentioning Nina Simone, she was the one that did the version of "Wild as the Wind" that Bowie kind of made his version of "Wild as the Wind" on the next album. Funny you mention that. Nice. Mark, I mean, growing up, uh, being a white kid in the suburbs, my exposure to uh, R and B and soul was really on adult contemporary radio stations, where Michael Bolton and the like were essentially the flavor of the day. So <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Why ninety two? Why ninety two? Paul and Phil in the morning. Um, so. Yeah, unfortunately, I didn't uh, necessarily. I always kind of saw that type of music as cheesy, but then the real soul music um, that I was exposed to working at the record store, um, your Sam Cooks, your James Browns, um, your um, Otis Reddings, of course, uh, you know, uh, kind of those staples. That's where uh, the magic happened. And, um, I'm not, I'm still I like what Steve had mentioned earlier. I'm not an expert in that genre. Um, but I like what I like 
And I will have to say, um, soul music uh, is always, uh, if done correctly, is and done kind of organically and naturally, it is always pretty much always quality. Um, so, yeah, it's just one of those genres of music that unfortunately I just I don't play around in a whole lot. But whenever I am exposed to it, I always walk away feeling um, enriched. It's it's just a different feeling that you get out of yes. it, right? Nourishing. Cause, yeah, I don't know how else yeah. to explain. Um, and with that, let's dive into this record track by track. So starting off, we've got the, the title track, Young American. It rounds to my life's a funny thing. Am I still too young? He kissed the diamond there. She took his ring, took his babies. It took him minutes, took her nowhere. Heaven knows he'd have taken anything. All night. She wants a young American. Let's hear a little bit of that sweet, sweet sound. So this song is uh, mostly my experience with this album. I have heard, you know, obviously fame, and I think I've definitely heard this album through at some point in time, but this is not one of my more heavily digested Bowie albums. Um, Not for any particular reason. So stopping... Stopping you right there. Um, when, when was the when when did you become familiar with this record, Eric? Was it for the podcast? I would say, I would say, I think I've listened to it all the way through in the past, but this is my first close listen. Yes, all the way through. Yeah, I, I first purchased this. Uh, it was during during my "Gotta Catch 'Em All" Bowie phase, and it was definitely a used version of the Ryko disc, and. Um, you know, when I when I probably bought all those albums around the same time of each other, I mean, looking back, you're getting an, uh, what was our discount? Uh, 35%? Like that, yeah. 15%? Yeah. 30, off 35, of a 799 yeah. UCD. 35%. The UCD cost 799 I mean, in just a couple of weeks there, you can, you can even with what they paid us, you can get a couple of, a good handfuls of Bowie That's albums. Right. And when half um, your paycheck goes to, back to the employer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I I probably dedicated more time to the uh, Station of Stations and the Scary Monsters of the World, but for whatever reason, this one always just get like I, I I have trouble knowing all the words. I have trouble calling out specific musical moments on it, but I've listened to it so many times because it's a pleasant background album. Um, yeah, I, I've, I've just uh, I've. Like the general feel of this album and the enjoyment I get from it, I've I've, I've known for for decades now. Uh, Mark, what about you? Absolutely, Ryko disc all the way. Um, it was a catch mall phase where, as when you work at a record store and you find an artist that you really like or band, you're gonna essentially go down the rabbit hole and buy everything that they ever had, as it comes either through the used section or with your employee discount, or God forbid, even five finger it. Um, so 100%, Young Americans. <laughs> Uh, hey man we know what the deal is i don't don't know i don't know what uh, out of the three of us i don't know which one of us wants to say no comment more than the other so we'll move it on by that um Uh. so um 
what I will say is that uh, I knew a lot about what this album was up to, um, just based on the fact that probably Changes Bowie was also probably first in my collection. Um, so I already was familiar with Young Americans and kind of the um, the trajectory that he was going on. So this didn't take me by surprise, but I was more surprised by the end of it of how much I enjoyed it. So there you go. All right, Eric. Back to you. Tiger yeah, Trap. Yeah. So this is the this was the ones. I mean, this and Fame were like the two songs I was already very familiar with, and this song is the mission statement of the album, just laid out for you right there. It's it's upbeat. It's funky. It's got a little bit of a positive key signature going on. Um, David Sanborn shredding on the saxophone any chance he can get, and um, you got Vandross is uh, uh, compose or conducting the backup singers. Um, uh, through that hook, um, which is cool. I guess basically, I guess I guess the, the original version of the song didn't have, um, didn't sound at all. The hook, the chorus, didn't sound anything like it. But but uh, Van Rose was practicing with his singers, and but we heard it was like, oh wait, no, that's what I need to do. And so he reworked the uh, the chorus. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's the biggest hit, one of the biggest hits off this album for a reason. It's a ton of fun, and um, it's a whole new sound for Bowie. It, it is a ton of fun, but my God, like I, this is a classic case of the lyrical content uh, not being reflective of how catchy the song <laughs> is. Because the lyrics are like, I, I'm sorry to go back, like to zoom right to, to Eric's lyric territory. I'll come back to sound territory later. Lyrics are some. Uh, there's some commentary going on here. There's some stuff that's I sadly uh, today to this day kind of uh, topical. Yeah, um, yeah, and, and it's it's uh, Bowie would tell you in interviews at the time that it wasn't meant to be political or anything. He was talking about a a kind of a doomed uh, relationship of new newlyweds, um, where the the wife was looking for kind of her idea of a young of America uh, and her spouse, and then got something incredibly disappointing, <laughs> which, which is, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. That one, um, that, that one line, uh, what, what is it? Took him minutes. Yeah. Took basically her like he lays her down. Yeah, he uh, frowns. Uh, Gee, my life's a funny thing. Am I still too young? He kissed her. And there she took his ring, took his babies. It took him minutes. It took her nowhere. Heaven knows she'd have yeah. taken anything. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's it's it, that's wild, and then it then it gets off the narrative as the song goes on. It, well, I mean, it has in, 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 to, to earlier when I was bringing up uh, Bruce Springsteen. This this is definitely got a Springsteen vibe to the lyrics. You know, this is kind of like a like the river or something to that effect. Yeah, just young American lovers, and it's just it's not working out like you wanted it to. Uh, I think he definitely had that in mind. I know their paths were crossing back and forth at this time. Um, but yeah, but beyond that, I mean, there's the, uh, 
there's that line, you know, would you carry a razor in case, just in case of depression? And, you know, I it, it kind of possibly talking about just, you know, walking down the street, you might want to harm yourself, you know? And there's that other line about, a, you know, sit on your hands on a bus of survivors, blushing at all the Afro sheeners. I, I don't even know if I'm equipped to unpack that line, uh, but uh, there's something about equality. There's some good, they're, they're like you know? the line we live for these 20 years. Do we have to die for 50 more? Um, I think is a great, uh, it, it's a great little line. Uh, like they, that fits into the theme of this, this woman, you know, has an idea of this young, sexy America. Um, yeah, this whole like, uh, you know, America is the youngest, you know, one of the youngest major countries and it uh, it wants to die young and leave a good looking corpse, I guess. Um, I like. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I usually like read the lyrics weirdly before I do my de- my my close listen, I'll actually read the lyrics first and give a just a lyrical like notes on just the lyrics and then I'll listen to the album and then take notes on like when I hear what the music themes, how those things kick in, if it changes my perception at all, it's, I've got some really weird rituals with this, this project guys, just let me know that right now. But, um, this song is either about somebody who wants the promise of America and then is disappointed, or it's the cockiness of Americans who think she's just lucky to have it as, as, as disappointing as it is. It kind of goes back and forth um, because it definitely does do some like some images of classic Americana, um, you know, talking about, you know, Ford Mustangs and and all this stuff. And but then, it, it yeah, it always ends with uh, misses a step and cuts his hand and, and this very disappointing, you know, very almost depressing things happening in it. So it's a baffling lyrics to a degree, but I think he gets his point across. Either way, there's there's a promise of a young America, and then there's the reality. So, yeah, and I, and I think you know talking about it uh, earlier, I was mentioning to Mark that uh, maybe you were on the line too. I can't remember uh, that this is the album where maybe your parents could get into it. You know, it wasn't that weird David Bowie, the what's that guy doing this time stuff, but it and the majority of this record lyrically. The majority of the lyrics in this album, I think, are kind of just like, have a good time, man. Take a load off. But this track, it definitely is not. This track has something to say. And I think that uh, it, it says almost so much that since the rest of the record's a little bit more easygoing lyrically, it, it, it kind of balances it out. Because it's a pretty pretty goddamn loaded first track on an album as far as sure. the lyrics go. Yeah. And I mean, I, mean I, I love the fact we got a Brit basically thrown in our face that we just got our president kicked out. <laughs> I mean, you know, did you remember, do you remember your president Nixon? It's funny because I not feel president like he had Nixon. been an American citizen for almost 10 years at this point, but that's not true at all. He'd only been, he'd only been an American <laughs> citizen for yeah, he says you're, maybe three years at this point. Yeah. This is like three weeks later. He's asking us, well, you know, Hey, you guys remember your president? <laughs> and uh, another lyrical flourish that I love on it is uh, they, they toss in that. I heard the news today. Oh boy. From the Beatles. Um, oh yeah, and it's just slid in Which there. Lennon's all over this yeah, album. That's yeah, a, so exactly. It's a, yeah. It's definitely you know it's a Beatles callback, but it fits the song and the way that the backup singers sing it. It just comes in and it just punches you, and it fits the themes of this song. It's great. Um, 
Ah, wow. I've said as much about lyrics as Eric usually does, but we haven't heard from Mark at all. Thanks, Steve. That's a hell of a handoff. Um, so this song is the black and white Seinfeld cookie. Um, it uh, has a sweet little taste, but it's really trying to uh, obviously send a message about racial disharmony. Um, not only that, just how fucked up America is and how it really hasn't changed since 1975. Um, and in terms of the sound, that's more what I focus in on um, with that soulful sax kind of luring you into the song. Um, I really enjoy that. You got the salsa like kind of backbeat that keeps things moving um, towards the end of the song where Bowie uh, breaks down and starts crying uh, as he sings in the song. I, I just in my mind have the stage hands coming out to put the cape on Bowie, but then he gets right back up and, you know, starts <laughs> all <laughs> night. And I just uh, got the really good interplay with the backup singers. Um, the song is it's it's great. It's it's Bowie really kind of leaning into that quote unquote plastic soul, that blue eyed soul that has also been characterized, but he's, he's given it all of his gusto that he has. And uh, it's just a great song. I mean, it, it is funny because when you have to read the lyrics, because it does sound just like an upbeat song, like, yeah, we're the young Americans. We're out on the town and we're going to make things happen. But then when you read the lyrics, it's like, Oh, wait a minute. America's not as pretty as the sounds. So I like what he's doing here. It's 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 a good little interplay. Yeah, and I mean it, it the heaviness of the lyrics, it's just amazing compared to like whenever I hear the song, like I just want to start dancing. That that beginning drum kick to the piano roll gets me every time. I just you start moving and the sax blasts at the start of it, uh you can't you can't deny the catchiness of this song. And it's amazing that such a catchy song is uh, so lyrically heavy. Um, I mean, musically it's a, it's a powerhouse. It's got everything. It's got, it's got the sax, it's got the piano. It's got, um, it's got the backup. So the, the backup vocalists are doing incredible work on it. Um, I, I, the, the call and response between Bowie and the backup singers and the saxophone it's it's a very magical song. I think it's great. It definitely belongs in the time capsule, if you ask me. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it might be certainly in one of Bowie's top 10, top 20 songs um, in his career. Um, if you kind of just look at the singles, um, but I mean, it's not a deep cut by any means, but it's a classic for a reason. I think as far as singles go, yeah, I think it's a top 10 single. I think out of proper singles this one you need to have it in the mix yeah no, i do agree with that i mean um the only thing that in recent memory of which i could compare any of other bowie songs or albums excuse me where he does try to be a little bit more um soulful that would be probably let's dance um and then after that I don't really have anything else to compare but this is an album that really stands by itself if you ask me there are a few songs on here as we'll t discuss later that I feel a little misplaced um, if you're going for a soul record feel. Um, but, you know, it's Bowie. He he likes to experiment on his own records for crying out loud. Yeah. He usually gets bored with a concept before yeah. he's done re <laughs> recording but, it. Yeah, you, you get the sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I do. The rising action of the end of the song is amazing. Um, 
And there's that little pause before they, they slide back into it for the closing where the guitar, and I think the guitar tone in this record is really good. Uh, uh, John Lennon being in the orbit of this record definitely somehow affects the, the airiness to some of Carlos Alomar or John Lennon on some songs, guitar work. It has that kind of like Beatles lightness to it. That still has like a touch of the mystic. I don't know how else to explain it, but the, uh, you know, there's that section where it, it drops out and it's just the guitar strumming. And then there's some of those like doom, 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 like frog drums that sound like tool. Am yeah, I making any sense to you guys here? Yeah. Are those congas? I mean, no, they're really uh, low. They could be, or, or they yeah. could be, uh, you know, timpanis or, or, uh, well, they sound like the, 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 to me, it sounds like the tool frog drum. Or like when you go to a and drum circle, that, man, and just, guy, you got that one drum, the guy sits between exactly. his legs and that's, that's the big one. That's the big low one. That might be it. Ah, yeah. That's back from your, uh, oh, your coffee boy. shop days again. Um, yeah, that goes right into some rising action that gets you to the end of the song that I just, uh, I love. Good opening track. I dig it. Five out of five for an opener for me. Nice. have that the all the action of young americans and i think in a genius move of sequencing track two being win was a good call when after all of like this just like you're drenched in sweat from young americans you can't believe what you just heard when kind of just drifts into the window and slowly wraps its fingers around your ears and has a ethereal quality to it that I find very relaxing, and I think it's it's absolutely needed after what you just went as, through. As high, the High Fidelity movie told us, um, you got to take it down a notch with track two. Take it down a notch. Exactly, and th- this is the uh, thank you, Eric. This is the epitome of taking it down a notch, but not looking like you're trying to take it down a notch. It it, it quickly gets into what it needs to do. It has teeth to it, but it it, it is a song that's kind of dreamy. It's not quite Homer floating down the street, falling asleep with the moon, but it's getting there. Um, I, I think it's a, it, I think it's a good track. Uh, Mark, how do you feel about Win? 
Um, I'm right there with you. The saxophones come fluttering in like butterflies through a window on this song. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> they really do. <did. laughs> you, uh, you got Bowie just uh, the soulful crooning that he's pulling out on this one is a, is a good one. Um, I, I really also like the backup singers. They're not there to really do the whole call and response that you tend to get on soul songs, especially on last one. Um, you get they're more there to punctuate, uh, and, I, and I like that effect. Um, Carlos Alomar, his guitar work is subdued. Um, the choruses really give you those soaring string work. And one thing in my modern music brain, um, who I stumbled upon, Beck's Midnight Vultures. Um, the last song on that album is called Deborah, Ooh. and I always thought that he was just ripping the song off, but apparently he just went ahead and sampled the song. Especially that beginning part. That's a great album and a certainly a great song by Beck. Um, but yeah, I this is a big win for me. I would say I would say that's a uh, that's a before, sister album to this album that Midnight Walker. Yeah, I, I and Eric, I want you to continue with that. But when uh, Beck also performs "Win Live," so uh, I don't know if you guys got a chance to look that up, but you can find it on YouTube. Oh, nice. Um, it doesn't surprise me. Yeah, yeah. But and, and it is a great sister album. Uh, I can't say enough good things about Midnight Vulture. Sometimes that's my favorite Beck album. Other times it's Odelay. Uh He was on fire in those days. Yes, absolutely, hundred percent. Yeah, and, and something tells me we'll talk a little bit more about Beck. You know, down the road. But um, yeah, Win Win is one that's a grower for me. Initially. The music, though it is dreamy and 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 pleasant, um, I, I don't stand to attention until uh, towards the end. There's a swelling of the organ and the backup singers that just that uh, is very nice. I I, I definitely uh, appreciate that. Um, and being it so pleasant, it's interesting because these are some of his most um, almost creepy lyrics. They're uh, begging for somebody to stay with him. Um, and, and like saying like, you know, you'll love me if I'm really, if, if, if I'm really with you, uh, but never actually gets to that, gets to that point. Um, critics claim that Bowie's lyrics in the seventies were too cold and he'll straight up admit that he was feeling distant during that time. Um, he wasn't, you know, he definitely wasn't at a, at a, a spot of warmth with his lyrics. Um, and I, you can kind of see that in the song, um, or rather he's explaining it. You know, me, I hope that I'm crazy. I feel you driving and you're only the wheel. Slow down, let someone love you. Oh, I've never touched you since I started to feel. If there's nothing to hide me, then you've never seen me hanging naked and wired. It's uh, pretty hardcore lyrics for how pleasant the rest of the song is. But it definitely is a, is a, is a song that almost seems like somebody who isn't really in a place 
to love is begging somebody to stay and love him. And uh, it's just an interesting, um, you know, it's an interesting contradiction, but it's it, very good lyrics. Um, uh, yeah. So this song grows on me as I listen to it. I don't find this to be a standout track on the album, but um, you know, it's pleasant. It's a fair commentary. Yeah. Um, yeah I think it's a pretty good song uh, for track two. And it's got, I love the, uh, the, now your smile in your right, Eric, it's kind of creepy. That line, now your smile is spreading thin. I like how the backup vocalists come in and kind of punctuate some of the, uh, the lyrics. Yeah. Um, yeah. Pretty, pretty good. Um, well, they give you a break with wind. They give you a, a second to, you know, calm yourself. But it doesn't last long because Fascination is next. And it is a mover. So let's hear some of Fascination. Fascination. Show enough. Ha! Mark, do I need to say more? So I'm convinced that this is the song that the cops in the sabotage video are listening to in their car <laughs> as they're driving around San Francisco. Of course, um, of course, you'll know yeah. in, in, in the sabotage video, they actually put a fog hat eight track. No shit. That's Hey Ladies. <laughs> that's Hey Ladies. Never mind. Sorry. Continue. <laughs> But I mean, this is like just straight out of a Streets of San Francisco episode. This is um, Michael Douglas trying to talk to the guy on the street, get some CI information about the guy that's down the other street, you know, and uh, it, it, yeah. it's it's a solid funk jam. I, I like the slow build up to a ripping tempo. Um, I'm sure Eric will tell us a little bit about uh, the background of this song, but this song is fascinating. <laughs> I, yeah um uh, i is there cowbell in this song is that cowbell what is oh that? yeah oh you, you got there's, some cowbell with that funky yeah. bass line oh yeah yeah there's some cowbell in this track uh that's squelching guitar i mean is that a talk box is there a talk <laughs> box on this one i can't tell but uh, I, I i know that there's like this squelching guitar that just I, it really just comes in and kicks your ass um again the song starts off with a bound up bound out bound and it kind of just sets you you're like okay all right what's gonna happen and just everything just starts going and you've got you've you've, you've got one once that first chorus hits man that fascination <laughs> show now i just can't believe what i'm hearing it's just incredible <laughs> to me get out of here with that chorus um and, and you know, like in the last two minutes, like it really is some of the funkiest shit I think I've ever heard. The last two minutes of this song, it's it's incredible. It's squelching. It's got the cowbell. Uh, and and I think on this track, 
I think David Bowie does a good job of taking a step back and letting the other people take a step forward. When I think of this track, I think of the ancillary vocalists really sticking it. Um, the band's on fire. Uh, you know, Mike Garson's not showing off. He's doing great stuff on it. It's a it's a goddamn party in a box. Uh, fascination. I mean, this is a soul train, uh, just absolutely chugging along, going from town to town. Is all I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. No, you you can actually, you know, what's that? Is that that song? People around the world grab hand, <laughs> love. Yeah, I love that song. And I feel like that song and this song, <laughs> they can go right together as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Perfect. This song Eric. is better. This song is better. This is my favorite song on this album. I, I, would, I think I agree with um, you there, Eric. Go ahead. Sorry. I, yeah. I might, yeah, I might, yeah. We, might be, we might be three for three in this one, guys. I'm not sure. I'll to, at oh, the end of the it. night, maybe. This, but yeah, I know. I, this I, song I, is so fucking good. Yeah. The uh, the the wow, wow that that fuzz funk bass that's like just jacked through an envelope pedal is uh, I'm just a sucker for that 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 got me that's the first thing you hear on the song and it's it's so good um, it's it's one you 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 hit the nail on the head there Steve it is uh, Bowie is not afraid to take a step back. Um, let everybody shine for a little bit. Um, and you know what? Good for David Sanborn, who does the same thing. The sax is great, but it's not like shredding. It's not like shredding all over everything either. It's just, it just is perfect. It just, it just melts into the rest of the soundscape. And, uh, you know, the lyrics itself, uh, well, I guess let's go to the background of the song a little bit. Um, this started as a song, a Luther Vandross song that, called funky music is a part of me that uh i can hear that i can hear that funky is music is a part of me yep it's a yep. part of me my motor getting in gear heavy And uh, the Mike Garson band, which was Bowie's touring band, that when but they would tour around without him and just just like you know play music, and they would play this song, and that's 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 where Bowie heard it and expanded on it. And at some point, he asked uh, Luther permission to record funky music, and Luther was like, he's actually a little pissed. He was like, "What do you mean, let you record it?" I'm living in the Bronx in a building with an elevator that barely works. And you're asking for me to let you record one of my songs, meaning pay my ass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's probably what he meant by that, which Bowie should have. And, and, and obviously he did because they, uh, they, they tweaked this one into, uh, into a, a, a full on song. Yeah. It's funky as hell. And it, it checks every box on your funk. Like, 
uh, I'm not crazy about disco as a genre, but usually when I like it, it's either that like Italian electronic disco or it's when disco branched out into funk music. And uh, I just, I, I, yeah, I just love when uh, funk music got all just effect, like just, just blasted through effects boxes and jammed out. And that's what the end of this song sounds like. Um, it's great. Uh, the lyrics are good. They're, this song is not, this song is about something. Um, there are songs on here, Steve, you were right earlier that don't seem to be about anything. This one is like a classic. Is it love or is it about drugs? Um, you know, every time I feel fascination, I can't stand still. I've got to use her every time I think of what she put me through. Dear fascination moves sweeping near me. And obviously he was beginning the height of his of his cocaine addiction right around this time. So, um, you know, lying in the fever, lying in the fever, raging inside me. Um, I know people think I'm a little crazy, but the pleasure seek, seeks this thing. I think I like fascination. So uh, it's very much about drugs. Um, but goddamn, this song's a blast. It's great. Yeah, if you want to hear the original version or the Vandross version, uh, here's a clip. That's off of his uh, debut album, Luther, from 1976. Uh, and also, uh, a, a band uh, called Fat Larry's Band covered this <laughs> in 1976. Um, not going to put a clip of that here. But Fascination is a great song. Uh, it's not at the similar pace, but it kind of scratches the same itch for me that uh, Stay does, where I'm just like, I can't believe how catchy yeah. this track is. Um, Holy stay smokes. I mean, Station Stay, uh, I, I've said it again. I'm going to say it. I'm going to repeat it again about Dennis Davies or Davis's performance on that fucking track. Oh, man. That thing can just power mm. jets into the space. I, I tell you. <laughs> yes, I think I think fascination has some of that similar uh, rocket fuel. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, not what not whatever junk they're using uh, today with Elon Musk and his cronies. That's right. I'll tell you that much. Old red pill Elon Musk. Well, should we go over to the right? <laughs> I think, I think that's the red pill. Let's do it. <laughs> Ugh. Yes, the next track is right. Right. Hey, did you ever see that movie Star Wars? Oh, about four times. People tell me I look like Han Solo. Really? What do you bench? Well, you tell first. I asked you first. Same time. Cool. Are you ready? Ready. One, One two, two, three. three. You didn't say anything. Oh, neither did you. <laughs>
guys go ahead. So that was right. It was also played at uh, Jackie Treehorn's and Jack Horner's pool party. Both of those were respectively from Big Lebowski and Boogie Nights. Eric, what do you have to say about the song, Right? <laughs> That's hilarious, because I just thought, oh, this is definitely from a pool party scene from some movie. <laughs> Boogie Nights, question mark? Like, I didn't look it up, but I was sure. Yeah, this is... Uh... Yeah, it's a very easygoing song. It is just, bam, you're in the 70s, man. This is a 70s song. Sit back, you know, you know, <laughs> rub your nose and uh, <laughs> sip, sip on a beer and enjoy the nice, warm California sun in the pool. That's this song. Um, it started out on the Goucher and it was much more of a soul song. It didn't have the funk to it. Um, the production is much better on this version, um, but it's kind of interesting to hear how it started on that one. You know, lyrically, this is a not nonsense. It's not about it's not about anything. It's just chants about being filled with the spirit, flying in a sweet space, never knowing, never been known to fail, never been no, never been known to fail. Ah, my darling, give it ah up there. Why? Gimme, give gimme give up there. That's I mean that this is the lyrics we're dealing with here. Um, <laughs> It's just, it's, it is, it, it is what, and, and like in a lot of that funk music, it's not about anything. It's about being free and having fun. And that's what this song is about. Um, uh, anyways, uh, I, I really actually, as much as I like the feel of the song, I'm not crazy about this song. It does, it doesn't stick to my ribs, but, um, you know, obviously he created an absolute sound because, uh, it's been used in so many movies to absolutely replicate a time. So, what do you guys think? Well, I think uh, when I think of this song, or a song I do like, you're correct. There's uh, lyrically, I mean, is it is he saying what is he saying? Is he, I've always thought he says taking it all the right ways, taking it in the back. But I guess it's never no going back or never no turning back. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought it was kind of a you know. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Gay sex, gay sex thing. Oh, did you? I think <laughs> I, I can see why you'd say that. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. I just was like, you know, my juvenile mind. I first heard this album. I was like, taking you say it taking the it right in the back? Way. That's what I yeah. thought. Of when I was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Taking it. Is that, is that the right way? And um, Eric, we used to have a roommate that would sing this song all the time. Oh yeah, was that uh, was that somebody who is that was that somebody who also took the red pill eventually recently? <laughs> that makes sense. Not sure. Yes, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, no, this song is fun. Um, it's a sexy, sultry song. That that saxophone's ridiculous in this track, and the and the opening, the it's really doing something. Um, 
Yeah, I guess th- this might be the most like just basic strict soul song on this album. I think um, it doesn't try to do too much. And uh, I can imagine <laughs> Michael Bolton trying to cover it and failing miserably. Oh, man. If maybe if it was on one it's of those Scott true. Ackerman like uh, things, I could absolutely see it happening. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that this song is just a good funk jam in terms of like uh, just you've got shag carpet immediately happening in the room that you're listening to this song. It's just automatically sprouts. It's growing. Yeah, it's growing. It's growing around your feet as you listen to it. It's just, uh, like th- this song does feel it transports you. The room you're in starts like, to become the 70s. All of a sudden your you bed turns into a heart shape and absurd. rotates. It's just it's Austin Powers. It's... <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. So if you want to time travel, write the David Bowie song is the way to do it. Yeah. Um, something with a bit more teeth, I believe. Somebody up there likes me. That's right. Let's take a listen to that. Somebody up there likes me. I think that this song, uh, like Sanborn. Now, Mark, what was it? What what track uh, did, Sanborn, you, did you say he, he took, took a, a step little back bit in? Of a step back in when um, he wasn't. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Whatever. Whatever step back he took, he decides to come right to the front at the start of this track. Um, it opens up with just this sax that just says hello and just blares in your ears, and it's beautiful me um this uh, you mentioned streets of san francisco earlier 
this track to me sounds like when the freeze frame happens. <laughs> yeah, this, this is, is where it leads you into sit ubu sit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of exactly. It's kind of got to like, hey, it's all done. Long day's over. Put your feet up and just listen to this song, man. Um, I'm a big fan of it. it, It's one of my favorite songs on the album. It sounds very triumphant. I'm really glad to to hear some positivity out of this because this one just was kind of a, like it it fit in the mid-tier section for me. Um, And for whatever reason, this song particular felt like I see where he was potentially telegraphing Diamond Dogs into Young Americans. I think it easily could have potentially fit on there. Um, yeah, you're right. There's there's some parts in this album, on uh, this record, where, I mean, yeah, both albums have sax on them. That's one thing. The sax on Diamond Dogs is more distorted. It's more kind of creepy. Um, but a track like this is just as as pronounced as the tracks uh, the the saxes on some parts of Diamond Dogs, but also there are times where his vocals on this album just they sound to me like they could almost be the same session of Diamond Dogs to me. Um, I think they're very good vocals, but there's a eerie eeriness to it. Even though he's doing very classical R and B singing, there's just an eerie undertone to some of the lyrics. Oh. The, the or some of the, not the lyrics, some of the. Uh, just the tone of his uh, vocals, and I totally no. stole the mic from you. So, but yes, I agree with you. Oh, I got, so, I got, I got some to say. Yeah, about this I mean, all I was going to really end with, and I'm glad that you interjected because it, it it certainly makes sense, and I'm glad you kind of agree with me about the whole Diamond Dogs feel. Um, but that eeriness that was not really on the first four tracks, it it settles in in this one, and that's where it kind of feels like this is the first song that kind of takes you a little bit out of okay. The first four songs were straight up soul. But I'm also going to be doing a little bit different things than just what you would expect in the first four tracks. Um, I mean, you still have a prominent saxophone line, but it also has that kind of foreboding eeriness that you hear now musically that you hadn't heard yet to this point, if that makes any sense. Exactly. I am. I'm a big fan of the, the somebody, somebody that 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 call and response uh, to the backup vocalist is great. Um, uh, Eric, you stepped out for a second, but I, I I wanted you to know that Mark and I agree that the start of this track sounds like the freeze frame of a 1970s cop show at the end of the show when the credits really roll. the uh, um, to me the music I, sounds like. Uh... As soon as that David Sanborn sack comes in, it's Saturday Night Live. <laughs> Meet the yeah. gold guest. David that's Bowie. Next. Very good. Yeah, that, that's next. And featuring David Sanborn. So what do you think about this track um, here? I, I like it. I like it for those weird reasons that the he's singing about a character on this that he would revisit and he has already brought up way back in in some of his more epic songs about like that really like uh charismatic leader that, that takes 
his followers to hell, essentially. It's it's very similar, but this one's looking at it more from like a celebrity uh, thing, like some uh, hugging all the babies, kissing all the ladies, knowing all that you think about from the writing on the wall, just like power hungry. Celebs, celebrities become power hungry, um, just like politicians. And then is his ever loving face smiles on the whole human race. And he says, I'm somebody like where you feel no self-worth until you have attention. So the whole somebody up there likes me isn't a joyous, oh, I, I've gotten attention from, you know, God or the, or the universe. You know, I, I finally have good luck. It's not that. It's I have privilege. Um, you know, I, y- you should follow me because I am the chosen one. And it's a very cocky statement. Uh, and he would revisit this all the way up to Blackstar. So this is the, this is a, a an idea, and it's probably his own experience with celebrity. And he had followers, and he saw that temptation to take advantage of that. I'm sure, and um, that sparked a lot of writing for him over the years, the decades. And this is definitely what this song is about. So I appreciate this fitting into that niche of that um, overlord, that kind of like celebrity overlord uh, that would that would that would come up often. So um, I find the lyrics uh, maybe more interesting than the music, but you know the music—it's uh, fine. It's this—I do enjoy this song. Yep, yeah, I, I think it's a pretty fun song, and um, I, yeah, we all agree that it has a different vibe than the rest of the album. And this song was on the Gouster. Um, this is another one that really benefits from a tighter approach. Uh, it's the Gouster one is slower, um, looser. You do hear a little bit more noodling, which is kind of fun on that. But um, ultimately, it's a you know, it's a bit more of a slog. On the I, sorry, I, I so. just was going to say, I think that you know certainly the saxophone breaks free on the Gouster alt mix version, uh, and I think I even like Bowie's vocals a little bit better on that mix. I don't know if it's just it sounds cleaner. Um, but it does kind of strip away some of that, um, I guess, eeriness or foreboding uh, sensation that you get on the Young Americans version. I think this album has some of um, some in this track. I think this track has really good work by uh, Mike Garson. Um, I think in this track in particular, his piano work is really good. It's. I think it's fun to hear him had to be held to a structure on this record. Uh, he doesn't get just free reign to just go ape shit, and uh, you know he's 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 locking down the structure. I think of a lot of these songs, and uh, this one in particular is good. Good turn by him. The Thetans must have been uh, at rest. Record. This goes on to uh, which I think is a great cover of Across the Universe. Into a paper cup They slither wildly As they slip away Across the universe Pools of sorrow Waves of joy Heart drifting through my open mind Possessing and caressing me That's the David Bowie version of Across the Universe, and it gets put into the rare box for me that, uh, oh goodness, I can't even think of many more. 
The main culprit is, uh, I think that Hank Williams, the third's version of Atlantic city is better than Bruce Springsteen's. And I think that David Bowie's version of across the universe is better than the Beatles. And, uh, you know, most people would say that's, that's heresy. But listen, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not saying Fiona Apple's version is better, but it is good. But I do think that the Bowie version is just, there is something about it. I think it might be uh, Dennis Davies drums actually really bring it home for me. And I do like the fact that speaking of Beatles, John Lennon and David Bowie singing together makes me really happy. Um, I'll probably have more to say. Uh, Eric, what do you think about this cover? When you say it's better than the Beatles, you do realize you're also saying that it's better than Jesus. Just make sure you understand the the, the uh, full ramifications most, of that comment. <laughs> I, I understand. And uh, in my power rankings out there, I don't want you to know where Jesus lands. I'll make that uh, secret for now. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think about this cover? Well, I, I like the backstory of the song. Uh, this song only existed to get further collaborations with John Lennon, which would happen at the end of the album. He, um, you know, basically, uh, this wasn't even done at the same studio as the rest of the album. This one was done at uh, Electric Lady Studios, not at Sigma. And um, I think the rest of the album was done. And Bowie called Lennon and said, hey, I'm going to do one of your covers. Why don't you come down and play a little acoustic guitar on it and sing on a little bit, you know? And then we can maybe like, you know, dick around and see if we can make another song. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure the Across the Universe, the, the Lennon input on that was uh, pretty quick. And they spent the bulk of their time making fame, which we'll talk about. But he used this song to shoehorn Lennon in and get him to get a, bit, <laughs> a bigger and better song out of their time together. Um, which I, I really appreciate that. <laughs> I really appreciate Bowie's methods there. Uh, using uh, essentially ego. I'm going to cover one of your songs, John. Oh, are you? And then, uh, you know, John came on over and uh, did their thing. Um, yeah. Fantastic uh, John Lennon impression. Thank you. I've been working <laughs> on it all week. Uh, That's, uh, Monty Python couldn't have done that better. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I actually did my note that, that, that the drums are... An absolute standout. Um, his voice is good, but he gets to some points where he's just doing like some uh, uh, vocal work that uh, uh, Bowie was claiming that that drugs were wreaking havoc on his voice during this time. And um, I honestly couldn't tell. I think he does some great vocal work all over this album and even this song. Yeah, there I, are... think, I think on this track, I mean, I actually think he does some cool things with his voice. There's times where he, he kind of goes like this and and does some weird vocalizations that I think are actually pretty cool. Interesting. Yeah. I, and I do like some of his vocal work on this song. Um, he does some, he does some guttural stuff that I'm kind of confused by, but fine. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a good cover. It's, it, it, it's, it's fine. It doesn't necessarily fit on this album. I mean, it was done during a completely different studio session. I don't even know if the Van Rose crew was even involved, but um you know, hey, it's uh, fun. It's fun. I mean, I kind of disagree there, though, because didn't that same session give us fame, which totally belongs in this album? Right? In a way, yeah. We'll get to that. All right. We'll get to that. Mark, what do you think about Across the Universe? Not the film Across the Universe. You can We can share it later. 
Well, that's the only one I subscribe to. Everything else is just a, uh, a, a just a mere watered down version of just that album or that movie. Uh, but no, anyhow. Um, so across the universe, it's a very ser- serviceable cover, no doubt. I mean, I think that Bowie um, is being very sincere in his cover. He's not certainly trying to do a whole lot with it in terms of um, changing it up a little too much. But I will say it it seems out of place on a Bowie soul record. Now, I know that Bowie never said, this is my soul record and I'm going to plant my flag onto that genre. And the whole thing will be from back to front. The soul record. I get it. But when the first four songs and even a little bit of track five, let's just say half of the record really is trying to do that. Um, it, I just feel it's a little out of place. Now, it's not to say that I don't appreciate this cover. I just think that it potentially could have been, um, if you're looking for continuity and consistency, maybe this isn't where you want to try to get John Lennon to come in on this track. But Balderdash. but I, I do think that um, I, I do prefer kind of the underwater effect that's more on the Beatles side of things. Apparently, John Lennon was not a fan of any of the recorded versions. Um, Famously, obviously, uh, the Beatles were not happy with Phil Spector's production on Let It Be, and that's why eventually they uh, came out with Let It Be Naked. uh, That stripped all that away. But um, it's a great song, no matter which way you slice it. Uh, If you were to ask me, gun to my head, which one do I prefer? I'm going to prefer the Beatles. Sorry. just It's in my DNA. Um, but I always tip my hat for Bowie trying to do something uh, with an out with a band that has just reached godlike status. So I appreciate the effort. Um, yeah, that's, that's all I really have to say about this one. Yeah, see, I I disagree that it doesn't fit. I feel that sonically it fits fine. I I I just I I do. I, I as far as continuity goes, to me, the tone of this cover sounds just as organic as the rest of this album. Um, and I think that the nothing, nothing, nothing's gonna that, that whole vocal sec- section. I think that's just David Bowie and John Lennon, but I think the way they approach the, those vocals sound very similar to some of the other vocals on this record. Um, I, I just I, I I think this cover fits in. I think they tweaked the song enough to where it fits in for me. And Dennis Davies drums. I mean, God, that guy first track he's done with Bowie, and you're like, oh yeah, this guy needs to come back. There's just some, there's just some, just some hi hat, just tight, good good work. I like to imagine uh, a, a moment in the studio where Bowie first hears him drumming along and just double takes and says, you exactly, got, you got the goods, Dennis. He's got I'll, the see, goods. I'll see Let's you on the next another, album. I'll see you on the next Let's album. Let's do this for another five years. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do, and I also think that they did a good job of 
you know, uh, it's a it stands alone. Uh, I think it doesn't sound just like the Beatles version, but <clears throat> excuse me. Even if you didn't know John Lennon was on this, I think his guitar tone kind of has that Beatles Eastern airiness to it that it needs. And um, I don't know. I guess I like it more than you guys, which is fine. I think it fits just fine. Uh, really like John Lennon in general. I know he can kind of be an asshole, but as far as some of the first rock stars that ever existed are, I just find the way he became disenchanted with everything and what he tried to do with his fame to be fascinating. Um, and uh, yeah, it kind of bums me out because whenever I hear this song, I like, you know, this was a John Lennon joint and the whole nothing's going to change my world lyric. I just always imagine that I'm like, oh, yeah, this guy got killed and the whole world changed, including his, obviously. It's always kind of a bummer. Yeah. So. Yeah, um, there I do like that their the beginnings of their friendship were just nothing special, but they did end up becoming kind of close friends, especially in their time in New York together. Um, in the uh, right, like the year, the couple years leading up to his death, um, it does make me happy that that they they had that. All right, well let's let's take it the right way all again, and go to. Can you hear me? Can you feel me inside? Show your love. Take it right. Take it right. Can you hear me, Eric? Sure can. What do you think about it? This song. This song is uh, is definitely uh, after a little bit of a sidestep with the last song. This this definitely gets real comfortable with the uh, the plastic soul sound. Um, there uh, apparently the song was originally uh, created uh, to be sung by Scottish singer Lulu. Um, not to she be, comes back. Not to be confused with uh, Lou Reed and Metallica's uh, mix or the nickname I've given my daughter. Um, but uh, that is where Bowie met Carlos Alomar. So, um, you know, they, they did make a little single for, for her with that, and then they brought it back for the Bowie album. Uh, and included Luther, uh, who Luther Vandross was Carlos's buddy. Uh, I think we mentioned that. And so he brought Mr. Vandross over and um, they made the song. And, you know, the, I like it. The uh, the Sanborn sax is some of his most uh, edgy shredding uh, on this album, which I, I do like. Um, very different than his solo work that I've heard. Um, the, uh, the strings and the singer raise this one to a level of respectability, absolutely. I do find Bowie's vocal performance to be about the least engaging part of the song, but that's not a bad thing. He's just, he's serviceable, but I wouldn't put this in like, you know, my top 10 or 20 or 30 Bowie song, like Bowie vocal performances, but 
everybody else is doing so well, but that's that doesn't take away from anything. Um, the song itself is a really, it's another really desperate, cold love song. Um, once we were lovers, can they understand when I'm checking at you out one day to see if I'm faking it all? New cities, what do I do? What do I find? I want love so badly. I want you most of all. You know, it's harder to take it from anyone. It's harder to fall. It's like a, uh, it's somebody who's demanding love from somebody, but they can't return that. And I'm sure it was very autobiographical. Um, biographers claim that I'm sure it was, it, they were sure it was written for Ava Cherry, who Bowie was romantically involved with at the time. Um, you know, it's good lyrics. Uh, very sad, very sad, uh, sad soul song. Um, but it definitely has a place in this album. I am right there with you. Um, this song is something else. It uh, <laughs> um, it brings you back to essentially him trying to close it out. That whole uh, feeling as if this album was an entire show. And this is the penultimate track that's going to kind of bring it all together. Um, it's... I don't have any problems with Bowie's performance. I understand what he's trying to do. And I don't know if maybe he's just uh, essentially appreciating the musical arrangements that's going on around him. And he's not trying to overshadow any of that um, because uh, it just, everything seems to fit. You got a little bit of drama. Um, and with Bowie at the very end, um, or towards the middle of the end where he says, take it in right. And you just, it's just Bowie's vocals. And then everything else comes back to life around that. It's just a very, it's, I think a, a good indication of how good the people around him were, uh, about arranging the music. So I don't know. It's just a really good example of good song arrangement. That's just what I'm going to say on this. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I think Luther, Luther Vandross's fingerprints are all over this one as far as the arrangements go. There's no way this song ends up is uh, in place as it is uh, without his work, I'm sure. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting. It's it, This this album kind of has a two closers. I think like what Mark said, uh, this, this, this song kind of brings the whole, uh, for lack of a better term, experiment together. And uh, does it pretty pitch perfect? Um, and you, I think the album can be left. You, you might have this be the last track, and you might not be wanting more. But then you have the powerhouse that is Fame, which we'll talk about in a second. Come in, which I think is an awesome closer for this record. Um, it's kind of an exclamation point for the whole album. Uh, it's. Uh, so we'll talk about that in a second. If fame was not here though, I think this could be a great closing song. That's what, uh, pretty much yeah, it. One thing that you're, you're making me think of, I'm just thinking ahead to what, what fame is about and what a lot of these previous songs are about and how this could be a, be a closer to, to the majority of what this album, the theme of this album. Um, 
a lot of these are love songs from a man who's not quite confident in his ability to love. Um, and I just think that's interesting. And, and, and obviously when you talk, when you, when, when you are not talk, but when you read about Bowie's state of mind during these years, I mean, he was in a really distant, detached place. Um, and so in a way there, even though the, he was criticized for writing cold songs, they are very autobiographical. It's where he was at. Um, and this is that epic closure to the, to those feelings. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, let's get right to it. The closing track, which also will become uh, Bowie's biggest single uh, to that time. Uh, I believe he performed it on Soul Train and it was his first number one single in the States, I believe. Fame. fame fame which was released as a sister track to fashion on a uh, a single years later <laughs> fashion came out um and in my mind i actually always put the two songs in the same file they really can't be much more different besides the fact they deal with things that famous people care about and they both have the letter f but uh, eric how do you feel about fame oh it's great it's great i get and, and i get why they were packaged together though um just because they're both funky songs, um, but yeah, they they are they are very different. I I I'm a, I, I like the song a lot. Um, the the music, I see I see uh, before. I, I think there's an argument either way that this song fits on this album. It's funky, and this album is funky. Um, but I don't this the musicians on this song are not the whole funk crew that was on the rest of the album. So there is a slight difference in sound. It's much more stripped down. It's bass, guitar, uh, Carlos Alomar's guitars, drums, and um, there's a little bit of flourishes here and there of other stuff, but it's not as layered musically as anything else on here. And you've got you've got John Lennon uh, helped write this song with Carlos right. Alomar. And yeah, yeah, and John John Lennon's uh, this this is worth. And Across the Universe is great, but if that was the foot in the door to get this song, it is it, it elevates Across the Universe even more because this song is so good. Um, just their their vote, fame, and the one person starts and the other one kind of comes in a little later, and their vote, the vocals singing it is great. It's an angry, angry song. They both had famous people problems. <laughs> that maybe we can't uh, identify with, but we can laugh at and be entertained by. 
because it's a world that we will never know. Um, you know, unless we get, you know, 50,000 more subscribers on Patreon. Um, we'll never know. We'll never know those those problems that they're having. Um, but, well, you uh, know, actually, Eric, Eric, let me stop you right there, though. You, you know, Bowie knew what kind of... Uh, we can't relate to the fame problems they were having. Lennon and Bowie, they had their own fame problems. And then Tony Visconti always tried to have the same problems, and he couldn't. He kind of had like a, uh, a, a, a a little dog syndrome. You know what I'm saying? And um, while I was looking up uh, the recording of Fame, uh, Tony Visconti, this is actually real. Uh, he was totally bummed out he wasn't there for the Lennon recordings um, because he was a big fan of John Lennon. I mean, who wasn't? He was John Lennon. He was a Beatle. And uh, I found some audio tapes here. Um, I actually... I, I've had to up my game a little bit. We were talking about uh, our buddy Elon Musk uh, earlier. and um, Our buddy? <laughs> uh, well, the guy. He's not our buddy. He's no friend of ours. We do not support him. But he did, uh, one, of his, one of his employees at Tesla taught me about cryptocurrency. Oh, boy. And for, oh, um, yep, for 600,000 uh, Nigobytes, I, uh, Nigobytes are a, a form of fake money. I was able to get this tape that you're going to listen to now of Tony Visconti being pissed off. He was not able to talk to John Lennon about fame. So you, you, go. you, you cashed in all of your animal crossing acorns. Across the universe. Of sorrow, waves of... That was the second time that I really had uh Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band on when there were two people in the room, not three. It was very mis- That's an incredible yes. story, David. Of course I'm John Lennon from the Beatles. Or as most people know me, Yoko Ono's John Lennon. Thank you, David, for inviting me to your beautiful studio. Uh, yes, John. John, John, I don't... John, we've been talking this entire time. I don't know who you're trying to introduce yourself to, but that's that's quite all right. It's uh, That's part of your... You, Dave, keep talking about the Beatles. I just want you to remember, I I'm Yoko Ono's John Lennon. Of course, Yoko wanted her space this weekend, so I took a long walkabout, and here I am. John, I do say, I do declare... Has anyone ever told you you really do sound like that guy that uh, hosts Saturday Night Live? You know who I'm talking about, right? Well, yeah. you got to, you've always got to make an announcement when you're John yes. Lennon. Don, Don, I think his name was Don Prado or some, some such. You sound just like him. It's very interesting. Enough well, about that. This new show premiering this year, David... Bowie told me about this album, Young Americans. What does it have to do with Beatles covers? Well, you see, John, I have been thinking that uh, the idea of being somewhere in one place while someone else is in another place brings you across a universe. In me, David Bowie, I right now I am going from, you know, I am 
transitioning from the rooftops of the Diamond Dogs to wherever my next station may be, to maybe a lower place. And in the meantime, I want to get into the sound of the Young Americans and take it across the universe. Does that make any sense at all to you, John? Yes, but David, we didn't write that song about you. I believe Paul wrote it about George taking an acid cube. Oh, hold, hold on, hold on. Uh, across the Universe was a... It wasn't a John Lennon joint? Oh, I... <laughs> I may have wrote the lyrics, but Paul gave it to Bonnie. Okay, I, I understand. Very, very gracious of you, I know. I thought you were always more of a, uh, you know, a, a a snide, selfish chap. So that's very interesting. You're not nearly as arrogant as the uh, the trades make you out to be, John. You know that. Yes, yeah, Paul may be guilty of him sucking the soul out of most of me art, but I'm happy to give him credit for this abysmal piece of shit song. But seriously, Dave, have fun covering this song. What's the other one you wanted to do? Something about being famous? Ah, uh, yes. Fame. I mean, it's right there in the name now, isn't it, John? Uh, I, I, I'm David Bowie, and I'm getting more popular. It's quite wild, really. Especially here in New York, this city seems to thrive on fame. And uh, you think you know a little thing about that, don't you? You're constantly laying in bed with your wife, and they're taking photos of you doing it. And you've released some great Christmas songs. I mean, in addition to that other band you were in, I forget their name. And uh, yes, you know, uh, you're, you're, you, you know what it's like to be just have the people following you around, wanting to buy you cigarettes and trinkets, right, fame? Oh, yes. I was very famous in the Beatles. And then I tried to get more famous by making pornography with my wife. Didn't take... Yes, I have no idea why that did not take off. You can never tell in this country, really, or any other country when they looked at those photos. So anyhow, uh, let's see. Have we recorded these songs yet? I'm not sure we have. So why don't we... Indeed, David. So what would you like me to do? Just shout fame! Yeah, exactly. That's what what I'm paying you for. That's right. Yeah, that's what I'm paying John Lennon for. Hey, Dave, uh, listen, I know you sent me to the store, but I left my key... What the fuck? John Lennon! Dave, what's going on in the studio? Oh, well, if it isn't my friend Tony Visconti. Yes, Tony, I, um, didn't expect you back so soon. What are you doing here so soon? Hello, Tony Visconti. My name, of course, is Jonathan Lennon from Liverpool, England. I know who you are! You're a hero of mine! You sent me to the store when you got John Lennon in the studio! What the fuck, Dave? All right, all right, I'll come clean. Tony, whenever we're around any of your heroes, you can't control yourself, even more so than usual. You, you're, you're more belligerent, and look down, Tony, look, at, look down at yourself. <laughs> I, hey, I might be pitching a little tent. Hey, I, might have, I walked in with that. Hey, it's not, it has nothing to do with John Lennon. Hey, no. all right, ready? No. Three, four, listen, I want to hold your head. Come on, John. No, I, 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 John, I apologize. Whenever Tony meets a musical hero, he has a huge direction. It's, uh, it, 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 it helps him, uh, I think it helps, it helps him think possibly, but it's 
incredibly distracting. And juvenile. I can't believe we've gone there. But here we are. Well, of course, I'm not ashamed of a young American pitching a tent in his pants. If you've seen my marital photos, I'm quite open for those things. But still, if you're heading to the market, you love a fresh in lettuce. That, that, that's what I am. I'm an errand boy. You got a beetle in here and you're sending me to get lettuce? I mean, what the fuck? I, 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 I can grab a base. I can show him how much better I am than Paul. Yeah, and that's what you got for me. Head of lettuce. Market boy. Tony Visconti. Murder. Up, oh, yep, up. Oh, that's typical Tony, and more angry than usual. And uh, <laughs> he know, was on, he got the producer's album. I don't know why he's so angry, but well, right. they caught they caught John Lennon on tape on that one, and uh, it, you know your uh, impersonation of him uh, almost sounds just like him. But how about, how anyhow, about? Eric, I, totally back to you, man. Uh, yeah. Fame. Well, I I I really like the sound of this song. It is different. It sounds different than the rest of the album. It does sound like something even I'll even push it past station to station. It sounds like some of it sounds like the low, the more funkier songs on low in a way, uh, just the music, um, which I really do appreciate. Uh, and obviously uh, it was funky enough that James Brown stole it. Um, but it, its origins go way back to a band called the flares and they had a song called foot stomping. And throughout this whole recording process, Bowie wanted to cover that song. And when they started jamming on this one, they started with that. Carlos Alibar made a guitar um, riff to go over it, but um, the riff itself was much more enjoyable. I, Bowie basically saw the future in the riff, not in the foot stomping cover. So they, they ditched foot stomping and just stuck with that riff that Carlos Alibar wrote and then made new music behind it. And um, and then brought Lennon on, and Lennon did co-write it. He came up with a lot of the lines in it, and um, obviously sang along. And uh, then they do some great vocal. Uh, they like mess up with the speed of the vocals in it, which definitely like brings me back to some low stuff. I think it just gets into the experimental territory. The, uh, this album um, was not meant to be experimental, so I appreciate this song going that going in that that range a little bit. Um, this is a great song. It's a, it's a blast. It's a lot of fun. That's all I got to say about it. You're right. It's a classic for a reason. That funk guitar riff is absolutely iconic. Um, it's so recognizable that Cadillac decided to use it to sell cars in their, some of their commercials. Um, and of course I'm sure it was used in Zoolander, Charlie's angels and the rest. Um, but it's a reason for that. It's incredibly catchy. I would argue is a little out of place in this record and hear me out here because I think it could have found a home on uh, Station to Station because, like Steve was saying, that it's a sister song to fashion. I myself find it to be a sister song for golden years. Um, oh, sonically, yeah, I hear, I hear yeah. that. Definitely um, sonically. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, it being the last track on this, it is telegraphing, hey guys, get ready for what's next. I'm going to throw a little German into this funk. And... Uh, yeah, just watch out. And, you know, that's what Station to Station is. Um, but, you know, you got John Lennon doing his thing. Uh, you got 
uh, David Bowie uh, just closing this one out in a classic style. I mean, fame is what it is. It, you're not a Bowie fan if you can at least appreciate it. Um, and if you're not a Bowie fan, you're probably a big fan of the Bowie or the Fame 90 version that was found on the Pretty Woman soundtrack. Oh boy. I've got actually too many notes about that. So we'll get to that soon. Let's talk about that in a yeah. second. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that friend of the show, Raymond Watts, and his uh, industrial rock project, Pig, um, released an album called The Risen last year. And the song Loud, Lawless, and Lost uses an interpolation, or maybe it's a sample of fame, to excellent measure. Back to Bowie's fame. No, I, I, I dig this song. Um, it's a grower for me. Uh, when I first became a Bowie fan, maybe it was because I was already familiar with it. I was just like, ah, no thanks. Over the years, I've grown to really appreciate it. Um, it's it's slinky. It's got a strut to it. Um, I, I, I love the, is it any wonder? I love that uh, vocalization. And um, I think it's a cool punctuation mark to the album. I, I for some reason I think it's a great closing track. Um, just works for me. I dig it. I think it's a it's a cool way to end the record. And it's and I think it's awesome to. I like I like it when uh, I think I'm just making this decision right now. I like it when the closing tracks of albums become singles. There you go. I uh, yeah no it's yeah. it's it's often. I mean, it, it, it's a trope for a good reason because it's very effective to end your song on like a some sort of epic ballad or 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 just a, a very emotional way to close an album. But to end it with a, a banger is also, you know, unexpected and equally oppressive. A cynical, a cynical, smart ass banger with a point. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, yeah. pretty, pretty cool, I think. Pretty, pretty awesome. Uh, lyrically, um, I mean, the lyrics are very obvious when you read them. Um, so I'm not really going to go into them. They're just definitely just feeling exploited um, when somebody else is controlling your art. But my favorite line is the core. It's the bully for you, chili for me. I love that line. Very, very good. I love, I love uh, anytime bully is used. Um, yeah. To, to, to well, Eric, uh, as, a, as a way to explode. I, I myself am a chili advocate, <laughs> but go ahead. Yeah. I'm glad Eric, I'm glad you mentioned that because, um, this is probably, I think, around the time where he basically just told a main man to go fuck themselves. The song is about main um, man. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely he was going through some stuff with Tony DeFreeze right now. Uh, yep. There's a, I, I think this, yeah, this is definitely aimed at, at them, him. So uh, before we go into the bonus tracks, let's rank this. So. This for me, um, 
is a solid four out of five. I mean, it is uh, pretty close to being a near-perfect record. Um, possibly, and I know that it, the cover version is clearly not bad or anything. I think it is high quality. Um, I just am wondering what it's doing on this particular record. I enjoy hearing Steven's kind of counterpoint to my uh, feelings on that. Um, and it does make me actually kind of want to reflect on that a little bit. But at the same time, um, I don't think that when I look at some of his perfect records, this is just a little bit underneath one of those. So four out of five for me. It is a highly entertaining record with a lot to offer. As long as you have an open mind and knowing what Bowie is truly not just a one note musician. So that's all I got for that one. I would be a little, a little bit lower. I'm a 3.5 out of five. Um, when you start this album and you get through track one and it's amazing and you get into the groove of what this album is about, you're right. It is near perfect for what it is trying to do. But for what I like about Bowie and what, you know, what I gravitate towards in music in general, um, I don't know if if more than one or two songs on this would make it into my top 50 Bowie songs. That doesn't mean that they're bad because they make perfect sense when you're listening to this album because it is near perfect when you're listening to it. Everything fits for the most part. Uh, everything is very enjoyable. Fascination is a absolutely top 15 song as far as I'm concerned. Um, but when I think about my fours and my five out of fives, Bowie's it's not quite there for me. Um, but that's no slouch on the album. He absolutely executed what he tried to execute on this. So 3.5 out of five. Um, and that's only when I'm going big picture. I give it a four. Um, and it's because I find it so enjoyable. Uh, it's odd. It's probably for an album that I like, I have trouble. Like, like if I, if I'm listening to, to diamond dogs or station to station, I, I, I kind of know those albums note for note. Um, this one, not as much the overall feel of the album though. I've always enjoyed quite a bit and it's one that I can put on and listen to like three times in a row and not get bored with it, but I'm also really not focusing on it. But I just I, I find it to be a extremely pleasant experience to listen to. So that's uh it keeps texting me while we're doing the uh, episode here. Um anyhow, <laughs> yeah, I give it a four. I get it gets high marks. It's not his it's not it's not in the upper upper escalon, but I, I think that uh for what is you know pretty much an experiment, it isn't an experiment. I think it's an authentic uh, attempt at what he was trying to do here. And it's now I can put on with my mom or my wife and it'll, they listen to it with me, which does get them some extra points because, you know, I try that with the, uh, you know, I don't know, scary monsters sometimes. And hell by the middle of the first track, they're like, what are we listening to? Really? So, you know, Oh yeah. I guess he gives, he gives a little out there on that. Yeah. This, this might be yeah, one of his most abrasive. accessible yeah. for sure. Oh, I think it is his most accessible. I think hands down, uh, like this and Ziggy Stardust are probably the two most accessible. 
this and let's date. Let's dance. Yeah, maybe, yeah. May, maybe if you're, yeah. it may, maybe, you know what, maybe if you work at old folks home, ours is the most yeah. accessible. Maybe, but, uh, yeah. No, maybe if you're serving <laughs> drinks at a Miami uh, hotel, maybe it's tonight, but yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Hey Lennox, why don't you tell us what you would rank David Bowie's album that's obviously named after you, Young Americans? I would give it a four out of five. Wow, that's pretty, but that's fantastic. Um, what's your favorite song? My favorite song is Young Americans because it has a bunch of instruments. Yeah, it has a bunch of instruments, yeah. Hey, Pod Like a Holers. Um, this is our obligatory Patreon plug, uh, patreon.com slash pod like a hole. Um, always, we, we, we appreciate you guys throwing us any change you can. Um, just helps us with our equipment and to keep this going and, and fun. However, I would say, you know, maybe this month um, or, or, or further, you know, if, if you've got your money to kick to a podcast like us, maybe consider sending it to um, some of the charities involved in the uh, social justice around um, Black Lives Matter and the current protest happening right now. Uh, just uh, there'll be a link to a list of these in our show notes, but you know, you perhaps sending it uh, to Loveland Foundation, um, which uh, provides financial assistance uh, for black women and girls seeking mental health support. Um, you know, there's, of course, the NWACP, their legal defense fund and education fund. Um, and of course, the ACLU um, supporting First Amendment rights to protest. Um, uh, if you look at Act Blue community bail funds, you can uh, donate directly into bail funds for people that are arrested during protests. Um, there's more on the on the link, so check it out. Um, and uh, you know, obviously, we're all about having fun here, but it's serious times. And if you can if you can uh, help people uh, think about it. All right, thanks. Bye. Yep, four. So we're all close to agreement. Fun, fun, good listen. I had a lot of fun sticking with it for a few weeks here. Yeah. Well, so those those bonus tracks though. So uh, these are on the version of the Gouster you might find on um, the Who Can I Be Now mm-hmm. box set. Um, I the opening one. Uh, th- this was going to be the opening track. Uh, John, I'm only dancing again. You're right, and that's a. Seven now, John, I'm only song. dancing. Wow. Yeah, seven minute song. And this song has been around. Um, it's been live versions. It's been, uh, it was more glammed out, more rocked out. 
I think this is the best version of the song, hands down. I think that this song mutated to what it was supposed to be when they recorded it for this album. And actually, I wish they would have left it on the album. I think it would have been great to have this go into Young Americans. What do you guys think? So it, this version is not for me. Um, you definitely get the dancing, 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 you know, like that you would find on Studio 54. Mm-hmm. It's an extended 12-inch remix that, you know, Eric loves. It's just not for me. I will give it to the last two minutes of the song where, you know, if you were to envision this on the dance floor, that's where the dance-off is going to occur. You got two people going into the center of the circle and, you know, showing their moves. Um, but it's... It's not my jam, baby, but I appreciate that such a thing exists, if that makes any sense. I'm just, um, John, I'm only dancing is a fine song. This is, um, you know, it is what it is. You, you, it's of the time, as I yeah, like to I'm, say. I'm kind of more with Mark on this one. Um, it's interesting. It is very disco. The rest of this, this album is, is more funk to me. This is very much like like Mark said, Studio Fifty Four. Um, this is the uh, the end of. Hey, I'm going to bring it up again. The Hey Ladies video when the guy at the whip is on the dance floor and they're all they're all uh, doing their dance off at the end. Um, it gets a little tedious. Uh, and my favorite part of the original version of the song is the overlapping vocals. You know, I'm only dancing. It turns me on. It doesn't have that kind of rising action. Um, it just has uh, seven minutes of, of disco, um, which I'm trying not to be as hard on, but uh, it does get a little tedious. And you know me, I love an extended dance mix. Not crazy about it, but very interesting to hear. Interesting. Well, yep, I guess uh, I'm the fan of that one. Now, uh, the next one, uh, they named a whole damn box it off of it. Who can I be now? Tell us about who can I be now? Right, right, right. Um, so this is the the saxophone show off piece. Uh, David Sanborn's going crazier on here than anything else. Um, this is a this, this is a stellar song. In fact, at some point they considered not using Across the Universe and putting this in instead. And this would have made much more sense on the album. This actually would have been a highlight, in my opinion. I'm a all right, I can I concur. I, it would have fit better than Across the Universe. Right. Sure. Um, uh, I enjoy this. This is like him thinking about, you know, th- this is a very meta song, you know, about just him exchanging personas. Um, but he's got some great vocals in here. Um, the sax is out of control. Uh, I like I like this this thing. And I this uh, I know this was on Gouster, which we finally got on the, the box set. 
but I know on the Ryko disc, this was one of the bonus tracks. And I probably would have would have shit my pants hearing that on there. Like, oh shit, this should have been on the album. This is great. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it sounds very classical. I think the backup vocalist, the mixing with David Bowie's vocals are perfect. The Who Can I Be Now, the that that vocalization I think is great. It's very a very full sounding song to me. I dig it. Mark, what do you think? I'm right there with you. I think um, it uh, certainly feels like it should have been on there if you really kind of wanted to continue the just soulful album from back to front. Um, you, David Sanborn is definitely shining uh, a light on his saxophone abilities. Um, I think Bowie's vocal performance is really strong as well. And, you know, uh, apparently our friends over at, or a friend, I don't know if it's a, a staff uh, pushing ahead of the dame, apparently said that discarding a track like this one for the likes of Across the Universe was a minor injustice. <laughs> so um, I, I feel that interesting that he's he's kind of echoing what we say, even though we all agree that Across the Universe is a solid cover. It Maybe just me and Eric feel that if you're going to go for it, just go for it and go in all the way with your soul uh, direction on this one. So. Well, yeah, it's funny you bring it up again because the Pitchfork review of this album that gave it a 8.7 did say, yeah, the only minor, the only misstep is what is this cover doing on here? So, uh, you know. Yeah. Might be a weird, weird hill that Steve Chambers is dying on, but that's fine. <laughs> I've, I've, I've had weirder, you know. Um, great. When that comes, the, the, the most, the, the last bonus track, if there's any remixes, Eric, you can clean up after this. Um, it's going to be me. So that's It's Gonna Be Me. I am a huge fan of this song, and I'll tell you why. It sounds like David Bowie is covering 1977-era Tom mm. Waits. Uh, it's uh, It's got Mike Garson piano as a center stage, and David Bowie's vocals are kind of musings. It sounds like a Nighthawks at the Diner kind of thing to me. I really enjoy it. What do you think? It's an interesting one, for sure. Uh, I, wow. I did not, I did not catch the Tom Waits connection and, and, uh, he's one of my faves. Um, but you know, when I, when I just focus on the Mike Garson stuff, I can see it. Um, this is one of those where the backup singers kind of take over. Um, and, uh, really elevate this song. Um, but I do like it. It's, it's old school soul. Um, and you hear Bowie really experimenting with his new singing style and ad-libbing a bunch. Um, so I do, I do like this track. It's, it's interesting. It's an interesting track and I'm glad that, um, Steven elevated it to a little bit more of an artistic, um, standpoint when he, you know, likened it to, uh, 1970s Nighthawks of the Diner, Tom Waits. Cause in a less cynical version of me listening to this song, I'm going to 
be agreeing with you. I, I, I do. But when I first heard this song, it reminded me like of a Billy Joel soul song. No. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, obviously Billy Joel has had his career of being kind of a blues soul piano kind of guy. Um, I mean, we're not all accustomed to what his achievement was, which is, of course, River of Dreams. I mean, let's be honest. Let's hear a clip. In the middle of the night, I go walking in my sleep. <laughs> all right, Mark, put, 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 the, rib, yes. put the ribbon away, it's Mark. It's been a while. We're going to get back to the, the album discussion. <laughs> Sorry, I just, I just all of a sudden bust out into my floor exercise. It's just it's a thing. It's instinctual at this point. Um, but I, I, I will go ahead and agree up, uh, you know, while Steven was talking, I was uh, sampling it again. And, um, so I, I, I think a less cynical version of me listening to this song, I think I will more agree with Steven than my initial gut reaction of this automatically defaulting to Billy Joel as I often do. Um, so I think that, uh, it's, it's not a, it's not a bad song at all. It, it it's, it's an interesting piece. Um, but w- I do have a question for you guys because on that um, box set, it clarifies that this version, it's going to be me, is without strings. Yeah, so so what ended up happening was um, I feel like on one of the... Um, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. So in 2007... Um, EMI released re-released this album and they th- this was included on that with strings and uh but it was never supposed to have strings so it was just like this one off so they always make sure to tell you that this is the version without strings the the version with strings is apparently pretty inauthentic so it's it's not preferred by the producers I see okay uh, by, by Visconti or, or Bowie but there was a string version and they only used it on that 2007 EMI release. Cool. Thanks for clearing that up. Cause I yeah. only listened to the one without strings that was found on that box set. So yeah. Yeah. Same with me. I, I can't find that EMI version. I'm sure I didn't look on YouTube. I'm sure it's out there, but um, this was, this was enough for me. I can imagine the strings maybe even pushing it a little bit uh, over the top. So well, great, guys. Before this turns into an episode of uh, Hardcore History, um, Eric, I think it's time you roll the dice. No, you're missing You're missing something. What am I missing? In 1990, they re-recorded Fame. Oh, yes, for yes. For a huge maxi single. remixed oh boy so many times um the most popular remix was the gas remix used uh in pretty woman it was remixed by john gas who uh uh produced paul abdul's knocked out remixing sheena easton 
very much in that late 80s, early 90s soundscape. There's a lot of horn blasts. It sounds exactly like you think it would sound. But with the uh, echoey synth drum, the, the it's got the NXS drums, but without the uh, the cool factor. Um, the Fame '90 remix is an atrocity. Have you guys heard it? I haven't, but I have just. Had, I'm imagining in my head that Queen Latifah is on at least one remix. Oh, oh boy, is she? Oh yeah. So uh, I actually that's probably the most enjoyable, but that's just because I like her, especially her '80s work. Um, Wait. Hold on a sec. I got to back it up. Just for the listener, I had no idea that thing existed, and that was my attempt at actual a joke. So No, no, no. Oh, yeah. Fame 90 features a verse by Queen Latifah remixed by DJ Mark, the 45 King. I want to be a star. I'm sick of being nameless. And though I strive for daily survival, I know the world awaits my arrival. Some say Latifah, do me a favor. Won't you sell this crack? Let's see a famous drug dealer. The hell with that. Me, the queen, condone the negative. No, it's obvious to me you must be suffering from a head blow. But I'm fine. I got my peace of mind and my state of mind. I descend from kings and queens of a long line. But my friends, they drop Benzes and Audis. I remember yesterday they couldn't walk without me. I went on the solo kick and left those bad habits while illegally they multiply dollars like rabbits but the consequences could be grave as hell i could go straight to jail or be a dead black female sometimes i don't care i should get buck wild picture my mother burying her own girl child i reconsider another day another dream always caught up in the thought as it seems still the fame it eludes me the negative pursues me i wear battle scars for the time failure bruise me but still i want to go someplace where everybody knows my name in other words fame who uh, did produce Jay-Z's It's a Hard Knock Life. Um, and it is uh, the most tolerable version of this this 90 remix. The rest are pretty much atro- uh, atrocious. Um, it's the same, but the beat is exchanged for a hip-hop beat, and then she does a verse. And, you know, hey, Queen Latifah, uh, it's, it's pleasant to have her on a song, you know? Why not? Um... So yeah, so she so she's on a version of this. There's a house mix by Arthur Baker, who actually did some good remixes like New Order and stuff like that. He does a house mix that's not good. It's about six minutes long. Um, he also does a hip hop mix, which is just the hip hop beat from the Queen Latifah one, but just chopped and screwed a little bit more. Um, and then there's a 15 minute long remix called Absolutely Nothing Premeditated, the epic mix. And um, that one is a little bit like a dub remix. Don't listen to it. Oh. Um, you'll want those 15 minutes back immediately. Uh, Steve, did you listen to the 90 remix of Fame? 
Yeah, no, I've heard it. It's got a fame, 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 kind of. Yep, thing. yeah, yep, yep, yeah. yep, yep. Exactly. Uh, it, there is a music video directed by Gus Van Zant. Oh wow! Uh, but it was not like. Um, I mean, yeah, there's there's Bowie performing in the video, so there is some some Bowie stuff. Uh, but um, and he's performing with a dancer, and then there's a lot of old Bowie stuff that's cut and screwed in the background while he's performing. Um, you know, it is not the the Gus Van Zant who gave us Goodwill Hunting or or even Elephant, but you know, Psychery Mick. Yeah, <laughs> maybe that. that. Maybe a little bit that. Yeah, saw but, that in no, the theater. Yeah. But anyways, that's the that that was the big uh, the big one there. So thrilling. Roll, roll the dice. All right, that's a big two. What, what's two? What's two? Oh. You remind me of the babe. Babe with the power. Well, put on your Tina Turner wigs and your leather cod pieces because we have to go in to the labyrinth. Oh, fuck yeah. <laughs> All right, so... We so got to talk. Gonna... We're going to have a team meeting about how we're going to do the labyrinth. But I think you listeners, we've, we've kind of kicked around how we're going to approach this one. And I think you listeners will like what we have. We just have to fine tune it. Anyhow. All right, folks. We hope that you, we brought you closer to pod and we'll see you in the labyrinth. Going down. <laughs>